0: Welcome back to the show, everybody. This is the Dance of Life podcast, where we share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we diligently study the Word of God. My name is Tudor Alexander. I'm your host and your servant in Christ, and today we are going to do our best to debunk some pretty serious, um, I don't want to say conspiracy theories, but crazy theories out there called the First Earth Age, Pre-Adamic Age, Gap Theory, and Two Creation Narratives. Now, these things are all kind of interrelated. It's a pretty mishmash of, of ideas, but my goal is to really uh, bring some clarity to this topic, to educate you on all these different topics, because they're even though they're related, they're they're slightly different. They have different implications. They're very popular, unfortunately, and they've led to a lot of misinterpreting scripture and creating some really crazy theologies. So my goal is to really give you, if you're looking for a short episode, <laughs> this is probably not going to be it. Uh, as usual, I like to be very thorough, but I want to give you as much scriptural and other evidence as possible so that you can see clearly, uh, because these these theories, they're very, and they're hypotheses, they're not even theories, because a the theory has to have some evidence behind it, but it's they're really just conjecture. And they're very seductive, they're very dangerous for your theology, because ultimately, once we get through all of the, the things we'll cover, at the end, we're going to see why these things are so dangerous to your theology, because they... They suppose some things that are completely unbiblical. They say things about God that are just just out of left field, and ultimately they, they lead you astray. So my goal is to give you a very comprehensive study on this so that you have evidence beyond a shadow of a doubt um, that they are just nonsense. So ultimately we're going to look at, what are we going to look at today? We're going to look at basically what, do, what does each of these theories say? Because again, they're related, but they're, they're nuanced. They're slightly different from each other. Um, what's the history and origin of these belief systems? Where do they come from? And believe it or not, they're they're actually pretty old. I'm going to cover the last 2,000 years of history. That seems to be uh, most of the, the time period. Before that, there wasn't really much of that. But then you have, we're going to look at scripture and basically break down some of the you know proof text in quotations, Mark. I put that because <laughs> they're not really proof at all. But Uh, We're going to look at proof text and as well as rebuttals, obviously. Now, we're not going to talk about other very important things that are related in this conversation. This is a vast conversation, so I'm going to do my best to try to zero in on the key things. But we're not going to talk about geology. Uh, We're not going to talk about evolution. We're not going to talk about the Big Bang and the history of that. We're not going to talk about the shape of the Earth. We're not going to talk about the age of the Earth. And, you know, a lot of other things. But these things are interrelated in this conversation. And depending on whether you're deceived on the things I just listed and you believe the mainstream narratives, that's also going to play a factor into what you believe about things like the pre-Adamic Age or the First Earth Age or Three Earth Ages. There's a lot of different names for these things, but hopefully I can bring some clarity. So let's just jump right into it. We're going to go through the history of what's called the pre-Adamic Age. Now, the pre-Adamic Age just a short bullet point for you, is an age. This is what they believe. There's an age of creation before Adam. That's why it's called pre-Adamic age. So it's before Adam. Now, there's a lot of, like I said, variation on this. And you're going to see just why there's so much variation because there's been such a hodgepodge of belief systems that have come into this idea, and it's just, it's exploded with nonsense in the last 2,000 years. So, the basic idea, which all of the other ones do, like gap theory, two creation ages, three earth ages, first earth age, all of those things rely on this idea of a pre-Adamic age. Meaning, in the narrative of creation, when there was, God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and he created mankind, that's the traditional interpretation. The pre-Adamic age says that there is time actually within that, either because the days are metaphorical or, you know, there's a gap between Genesis verse one and verse two. We'll get into all of this, but I'm just kind of giving you a cursory idea or some other ways of explaining. There's basically a giant gap of time before Adam that maybe there was two creation accounts. Like, for example, the first man that was created on the on the sixth day in Genesis one was, You know, just a a different kind of man, maybe as an androgynous man, maybe as a different kind of species, Neanderthal, whatever. And then Genesis two, that's supposedly the creation of actual Adam. So there's been so much misreading of scripture, and again, these things sound very tantalizing because today we live in a very deceptive world. We're at the height of deception right now. You know, with and you'll see as we go through this history. This is not even a complete history. This is just going to be some of the main bullet points that have happened over the last 2,000 years. But you, again, this is why I want to cover it. Because once you see this, you'll see, wow, like this has really built momentum over the last 2,000 years. And it's it's getting worse and worse because, again, people aren't educated in the Scripture. They they have itching ears. They want to go for things that are controversial or, you know, they sound, you know, like secret knowledge. And, again, it's just the the same old lies as usual. So let's go through the history. And, and again, we're just going to go through this bullet point by bullet point. And I want you to... Keep this kind of rolling in your mind and see how how it all builds up. So in AD 170, there was a debate between Theophilus of Antioch and Ap- Apollonius, the Egyptian. And they argued basically about the age of the earth. This is when kind of things started to question the age. And Apollonius was a pagan, and he said that the earth was 153,000 years old. So just, just to see that the debate around the earth's age and questioning the Bible was you know, coming from the pagan world, and it's also very old. It's about 2,000 years old. Now, a couple centuries later in the 300s, the 300 AD, 330 to 360 AD-ish, there's an emperor, Roman emperor, named Julian the Apostate. And he basically, he's called the Apostate because he left Christianity. And he believed in something called co-Adamism, which is basically that there were multiple, like Adam and Eve weren't just The only couple that were created, there were multiple couples created. So again, index what I'm telling you, index it in your mind, because you're going to see these tangents come, you know, in and out from various sources and how this thing just builds. So again, if you understand the history and where these beliefs come from, this is very important for everything that you believe. You have to understand where it comes from. So then you had Augustine in the fourth century also, who wrote uh, a book called The City of God. And this chronicles a lot of debates on the age of the earth and, you know, just all these different things, pre-Adamic sort of hypotheses. And so this was chronicled in the fourth century by Augustine, who was a big name in the fathers of the church. But his opinion was that a lot, it seemed like a lot of the pagans were bringing up these challenges. Again, pagan influence, and you'll see why. But the pagan influence of this, and he thought they were pretty ridiculous for questioning the earth's age so the early church fathers looked down on this they held to the traditional view that the earth was created in six days by god nothing is impossible for god now couple skip a couple centuries in in the future to between the year 900 and 1700 so quite a big chunk of time we had medieval islam and they believed that there was one atom for each fifty thousand year period now if you've read anything in the quran About their cosmology, you know just how backwards everything is in there, so that's no surprise. Uh, They also believe the jinn, which are kind of spirit beings, were pre-Adamite beings. So again, they think that there was a pre-Adam race and that now they're maybe spiritual, half-spiritual. You also had the Nabataean um, agriculture, which is a book written or possibly translated by Ibn Washia in 904. And that said that Adam was actually from India and he was the father of just some agricultural people, not everybody on the planet or plane, I should say, because I don't believe in a globe. But that's besides the point. Maimonides, who was a Jewish philosopher in the 12th century, uh, basically wrote something called The Guide for the Perplexed. And he said that this whole pre-Adamic idea was from the Sabeans. Now, Sabaeans were kind of a mysterious group in the Middle East at that time. Supposedly, they they stole some of the their thoughts about this pre-Adamic age from Jewish thought, and they added their twist to it. So again, the outside sources are taking... What is the pattern here that I want you to notice? Outside sources are coming in and twisting reality, twisting the truth. Uh, the Sabaeans said that Adam was a prophet of the moon and taught people agriculture. I mean, all kinds of crazy things. Now, we skip to the Jewish Encyclopedia, and this is from 1901. So I'm going to actually put it on my screen here really quick. And so this is from a selection in the Jewish Encyclopedia about hermaphrodites and Adam being a hermaphrodite created like androgynous, transmitted and developed through dualistic Gnosticism in the East. Pay attention to that word, Gnosticism. The notion of an androgynous creation was adopted by the Haggadists, these are some Jewish writers in antiquity, in order to reconcile the apparently conflicting statements of the Bible in Genesis 2, 7, and 18. The separate creations of man and of woman are described, while in chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So again, they're seeing... Differences between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Going on. Their creation is described as a coincident in connection with the latter verse. The Midrash, which is a Jewish commentary uh, text, states that Genesis, uh, Jeremiah, son of Eleazar, says God created Adam androgynous, but Samuel, son of Naaman, says that he created him double-faced, then cutting him in twain and forming two backs, one to the one and one, the other to the second. So why did I choose to read this for you? Because ultimately, the Jews, the the ancient Jewish commentaries, again, this is outside the Torah. These are like Babylonian commentaries. These are are things that are coming from mysticism. And you'll see this thread consistently. They believed a lot of things that are not taught in the Bible, uh, that are tied to the Kabbalah and all these other things. If you know what those are, then it's no surprise. But they believed that Adam was created androgynous. So already... From antiquity, people started to push this idea of two creation accounts, or possibly even that Adam was created androgynous, and then once, you know, the rib was taken out, then sex came, you know, sexuality came into being. So, a lot of twists on this. Again, there's so many ways that this idea of pre-ada- pre-Adamic age or two creation accounts has been twisted that you have to understand where these things come from. Uh, you know, the, the mystical Jews in that background, they believed in Lilith as well. If you've heard of Lilith, she was supposedly some sort of first Eve, but then she didn't get along with Adam. Um, and she was cursed and she left and she became a demon. I mean, there's all this mythology and it's not in the Bible, but it is in the Talmud. And it's in the Zohar. The Zohar is a mystical text, Jewish mysticism. and the Talmud, I'm not even going to get into the Talmud if you've read Anything about the Talmud, it's the most racist book there is. Some of the things it says about Jesus Christ are not even, I can't even utter them. They're so blasphemous. So you wonder if if that source that, that has all these horrible things to say about the Messiah also says things like Adam was created androgynous and there was Lilith. Should you really believe anything that comes out of these sources? And the answer is obvious, but... The Babylonian Talmud also uh, you know, said something like that Ham, who was a dis- uh, son of Noah, was basically cursed with black skin. This is in Sanhedrin uh, 108b, but it says, this is the Babylonian Talmud, it says, Ham's descendant Cush is black skinned as a punishment for Ham's having uh, had sexual intercourse in the ark. So, you know, if, if you haven't read the, the narrative about Noah, basically after The flood, Noah gets drunk. Ham, one of his sons, apparently violates him, which is very crazy. But as a result, you know, Noah gets upset and he curses actually Canaan. He doesn't curse Ham. But this whole, again, I'm opening a lot of things. Just keep them on the notepad. The idea that Ham or his descendants were cursed with black skin comes from the Babylonian Talmud other sources as you'll see and this led later to to seeing that maybe the pre adamites might have been the Africans because you know certain things it was it's it's a it's a false idea obviously but it's where does it come from that's the question where does this idea come from it doesn't come from the Bible and certainly it's not biblical as I'll show you very shortly but moving on you also had John Rogers who was a religious reformer. I believe uh, in the 15 or 1600s. He was the first Protestant martyr of the English Queen, uh, Queen Mary I. And he reported that familists, which was a kind of a sect or a cult, believed in a pre pre-Adam, Adamic civilization. So let's see what the familists uh, have to say. So if we just pull it up here, this is from the Britannica Encyclopedia on Familists. And it says, the family is a member of the family of love, a religious sect of Dutch origin, followers of Hendrik Nikolaos, a 16th century Dutch merchant. Nicolaus' main activity was in Emden, East Friesland, In his Evangelium Regni issued in England as a joyful message of the kingdom. Remember, this is a sect. It's not anything to do with the Bible. He invited all lovers of truth of what nation and religion, soever they may be, Christian, Jews, Mahomites, or Turks, and heathen. He invited all these people to join in a great fellowship of peace, the family of love, giving up all contention over dogma and seeing and seeking to be incorporated into the body of Christ. Does that sound like anything to you today? Sounds like a lot of stuff, namely the Pope and his ecumenical efforts. But this has nothing to do with the Bible, because what fellowship does light have with darkness? right? So this is a sect that believed in pre-Adamic civilization. Were they biblical? Absolutely not. Then you had Giordano Bruno, who was an Italian philosopher. That was in the late 1500s. He claimed that Africans and Jews couldn't be of the same descent. So Africans must be pre-Adamic. And there you go. This is how it starts to evolve. And you'll see evolution over evolution. A couple years later, in 1655, you had a famous figure in this whole movement, which was a French theologian. Isaac La Perere, I'm totally mispronouncing this, Perer. And he wrote a book called Pre-Adamite. It was in Latin. Now, he said a couple of key things in this, and he was one of the main figures in this whole theory. And he basically said that God created Adam, who was the father of the Jews, after the seventh day. So again, right off the bat, that's contradictory to scripture because man was created on the sixth day. He also created. He said that God created the Gentiles on the sixth day, basically the people who were before Adam. And so he created this duality of creation, which doesn't exist in the Bible, but he split it into two. And again, this guy was a major figure in shaping the thought of pre-Edomite creation and two creation narratives and so on. Now, his support for this comes from a couple of things, and we're going to respond to these, but... One of the things he said is, well, Cain feared being killed by others after he killed Abel. So there must have been people around. Therefore, there must have been pre-Adamites. So just keep that in mind. He, he also said that Cain founded a city, uh, his own city, which basically, you know, there must have been people. So where do the people come from? That was his argument. He also took a wife of unknown origin, apparently. Again, we're going to look at all of these claims So don't worry. And then he also interpreted Romans 5-12. So let's go to Romans 5-12 really quick. He also wrote Romans 12-14. He interprets this in a very different way. So let's read the scripture and see how he sees it. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Here we go. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of the of Adam. So how he took this is that this verse is referring to people who existed who didn't eat from the fruit, they were just there, you know, but but they still Got the death penalty, basically. They, they got imputed the, the guilt of Adam. Okay. Now, the traditional interpretation of this is very different. The traditional interpretation is we inherited Adam's, the consequences of Adam's mistake. So, yeah, even over those whose sinning was not like the transaction of Adam, you and I didn't eat from the forbidden fruit, but we still die and age and live in a cursed world because we inherited the consequences of the fall. That's how this verse should be interpreted. But anyway, again, we're gonna get back to all these. He, this guy, basically Isaac La Perrier, said the Gentiles sinned against God, but you know, they didn't sin in the same way. They broke some sort of moral will, and you know, there had to be people as a result of this. So, again, just pay attention to how scripture is being used and twisted. To, to form these things. And then more and more people come later and they take those previous false truths or false, you know, their lies, basically, false ideas, and they build on these ideas with adding more of their nonsense. And so just look at the way this grows. In 1684, you had Francois Bernier, who was an author, and he wrote, A New Division of the Earth, Species of Races. Now, this was a book that he published anonymously because he didn't want to have criticism, because a lot of people were criticizing this whole, you know, emerging view of, of a pre-Adamic, you know, like black people were pre, pre-Adamic. It was just different races being pre-Adamic, whereas the white race was favored, right? So, But he published this, and it was pretty influential at the time, and he published it anonymously. anonymously. Now, shortly after that, you had something that's called the Age of Enlightenment. That was a very big period of time, about, you know, almost about 150 years between 1685 to 1815, where a lot of very key things started to happen with with thinking and philosophy and humanist philosophy. I've talked about this before. And just so much happened in that period of time. But basically, you know, it, it, it started to evolve. All these things that I just mentioned started to coalesce and evolve into more and more racist theories that basically Cain took on a pre adomic wife, and so they, they created like some sort of hybrid, you know, non-white race, and it just led goes from there. Uh, you know, there was a lot of also rebellion against the Bible around that time. Think about the French Revolution. Think about, you know, even America. There's a whole study on how the founders of the United States were not Christian by any means. They were They had Luciferian philosophies, humanistic philosophies. Of liberation and knowledge and you know all these traditional things from the Garden of Eden it's the same old stuff but all these things started to happen in that time and so people it became fashionable to rebel against Christianity rebel against the Bible question authority uh, have a more man-centered image and and so naturally in that kind of atmosphere these ideas cultivated, they were very cultivated. And so you had something called the gap theory around that time, which emerged. And so the gap theory added to this whole pre-Adamic conversation and stated that basically there's a gap between the first verse of Genesis and the second verse of Genesis. So let's let's look at Genesis one really quick and let's read that. So it's a Genesis one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, pretty plain. Genesis 1 verse 2, the earth was was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So, now, naturally how you read this, if you actually read the whole passage, is a continuation. But people who insist that there's a gap, they insist that there's a gap between these two verses, in the sense that Genesis 1 is an initial creation of the earth at some very distant point in the past. Then all this crazy stuff happened. The fall of Satan happened, or there was a pre-Adamic age. There's a lot of things, a lot of theories and variations, which we're going to go through. But there's a lot of stuff that happened on top of that. There was a judgment of some kind, obviously very serious because it brought the earth to a formless and void state basically. And so, and there's some verses that are used to support this hypothesis, but that's the idea, is that there's a gap between these two verses, and there's, you know, there's a whole gap of time. Now, in the modern day, more recently, people use Genesis one let let's look at that really quick, as a, as a proof that there was something there. Now, this, it goes, and God blessed them, and God said to them, actually, let me go to the King James, because this is... English standard version, because this is this is the problem. In Genesis one twenty eight, says God and God blessed them. <clears throat> excuse me, and God said unto them, "Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth." This is replenish, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish in the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the living creature that moveth upon the earth. So, why is that an issue? Because replenish. Well, in our language today, replenish means to refill. Okay. So this is, again, keep this in mind, for poor exegesis, meaning taking meaning from Scripture, interpreting text. This is poor exegesis. When was King James written? Several centuries ago. In 17th century English, replenish meant to fill. Okay, if you look at uh, the the word Malay, the actual like Hebrew word Malay. If you use Strong's concordance, now I'm not a huge fan of Strong's, but it, it can be useful. That's another thing we'll we'll bring up in the future of this talk, which is too much reliance on Strong's concordance. If you know anything about Strong, Strong was not a linguist. He was not a Hebrew etymologist. He he's been very criticized for his concordance. You know, he wasn't a, a scholar. I mean, he just he put something together. And it it deals with root words. If if you're going to do an in-depth word study, you have to use the interlinear. You have to use the original language text because sometimes these things aren't exactly accurate. But it can be useful. I'm not saying it's not useful. But too many people are using Strong's Concordance and saying, oh, see, it says this, and I'm going to relate it to that word randomly and, and make a connection. It doesn't work that way. But either way, the Hebrew word is malay, and malay means to fill. It just means to fill, like fill something up. In in the time that King James was written, replenishment also to fill, not to fill again. Nowadays, it means to fill again, but language changes. It's dynamic. In Genesis 9-1, it's the same thing again. In God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. It's, it's to fill the earth. It's not to repopulate it. It's to fill it. It's, it's an echo of the previous verse in Genesis one twenty eight. God said the same thing in both situations. So replenish is the whole using the word replenish to say it repopulate. And somehow that suggests a pre-Adamic age. That's false because replenish in the time that King James was written did not mean to refill. It just meant to fill up, like be fruitful, go fill the earth. And the first time, there was nothing there, so go fill the earth. The second time, there was also nothing there. It got destroyed. Everything got destroyed. Fill it up, not refill it. So that's really important. But anyway, let's move on. There's a lot to cover with this, with the whole history of this. I mean, it's just fascinating, really, if you go into it. But in the 1800s, as the 1800s started to progress, you had a lot of significant things happening. The first thing is that scientists started to, well, again, quote-unquote, there's a lot of things that have been called science that are not science, but scientists rejected that non-whites and whites had the same lineage, okay? So they started to have a lot of people, one of them was called Samuel G. Morton. He was a famous figure in this, and he did cranial measurements and basically started doing all kinds of theories, and then you had phrenology, if you know what phrenology is. That was a huge science. That was a quote-unquote legitimate science back in that time, I believe for like 100 years almost, I don't know, I mean it, it was a pretty popular thing where, what did they do? They, they analyzed the shape of the cranium and the associated intelligence and personality and, and just horrible things, you know, but it was a legitimate science. And so obviously you can see the tangent where this is going and how this can be weaponized to create some seriously, uh, you know, flawed thinking. Then you also had evolution, right? Anthropology. People were trying to question the age of the earth. People were questioning the Bible. You know, there's a lot of things happening. And and people were questioning creation, cosmology. A lot of stuff was happening. In the 1830s, another significant thing happened, which is the Latter-day Saints. And you're going to see how this falls right into all of this. But Joseph Smith, who basically started the Latter-day Saints... He, he had a couple things about the Mormons, okay, before we, we get into why I chose to put this in the history of the pre-Adamic age. First and foremost, how did Joseph Smith get his quote-unquote revelations? He got them from an angel. But Galatians 1a, let's take a look at Galatians one But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed right away that disqualifies mormonism that disqualifies islam both of them got their revelations from an angel their secret knowledge now the book of mormon has countless contradictions with the bible and i'll leave a, a link for it in the description for this episode that you can see how many contradictions it has with the bible it's completely unbiblical. there's so many unprovable uh, historical claims in the book of mormon and all their you know their texts they do not believe in the trinity They don't believe in the deity of Christ as God, as the self-existing God, the creator God that was always there. He just took on flesh, but he was always self-existing. They don't believe that. Mormons also believe in a works plus grace salvation, just like the Catholics. That's heresy. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. And Joseph Smith and Brigham Young were both Freemasons. Look into it. High-level Freemasons. And if you look at their temples, you look, I mean, they don't even have crosses in their temples, for one, but... You look at their temples, you look at the secrecy, you look at the initiation rites. I mean, it's all just Freemasonic stuff. Now, why did I put this? Why did I choose to put the Latter day Saints as part of the history of the pre Adamic Age? That's significant. Well, because they believe in something called spirit babies. So let's take a look what the. Uh, I'll pull it up here on my screen. This is from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. That's from their official website. Spirit Children of Heavenly parents overview god is not our not only our ruler and creator he is also our heavenly father all men and women are literally the sons and daughters of god literally okay man as a spirit was begotten and born of heavenly parents and reared to maturity in the eternal mansions of the father prior to coming upon the earth in a temporal or physical body teachings of presidents of the church joseph f smith Did you get that? Let me read that again. Man, as a spirit, was begotten and born of heavenly parents and reared to maturity in the eternal mansions of the Father prior to coming upon the earth in a temporal or physical body. Every person who was ever born on earth is our spirit brother or sister because we are spirit children of God. We have inherited the potential to develop his divine qualities. Through the atonement of Jesus Christ, we can become like our Heavenly Father and receive a fullness of joy. And, you know, it's just, we were, here we go, we were not all alike in heaven, previous existence. We know, for example, that we were sons and daughters of heavenly parents, males and females. We possessed different talents and abilities, and we were called to do different things on earth. Hmm. A veil covers our memories of our pre-mortal life. You mean a previous life, like reincarnation? But our Father in Heaven knows who we are and what we did before we came here. He has chosen the time and place for each of us to be born so we can learn the lessons we personally need and do the most good with our individual talents and personalities. I mean, you really can't make this up, but this is what they believe. This is not biblical at all. There's nothing in the Bible that talks about an an immortal soul, a, a previous spiritual existence being in the mansions, of God being reared by heavenly parents and then kind of coming down here. All these things are just just new age ideas that are obviously lies. I mean, if you know anything about the Bible, first off, the Hebrews never believed an immortal soul. It doesn't teach that. That's a new idea that's brought in from pagan sources. And we're going to get into this, but again, moving on, I just want to show you where do these ideas come from? And again, if they come from sources that are Basically, from the devil, it's obvious, right? I mean, these are all deceived people that are coming up with these ideas. Why would you put your faith in that? Why would you believe that over what the scripture says? Why would you bring that into scripture and read, you know, read all these false ideas into the text? So, moving on. 1859, Charles Darwin. Obviously, everybody knows who that is. But both him and his father were Freemasons. That's something to note. And... Evolution says that we get better over time. But the truth is the Bible tells you differently. The Bible says we're getting worse. God cursed the world. People lived less and less over time. Our genes are degrading over time. You know, you can't, you can get poodles from wolves, but you can never get a wolf from breeding poodles. It doesn't work that way. Why? Because genetic information is lost every generation. There's ample evidence for that. Evolution by natural selection does not work. It's a fairy tale. But why is it needed? Again, it's a spiritual idea. You got to remember, again, in the very beginning, I said other topics that I'm not going to talk about too much, like evolution, the shape of the earth, cosmology, all these things tie into it. You got to understand that the idea that we're getting better, which is an inversion of the truth, that's got Satan's signature all over it, the idea that we're getting better is is needed for all of this New World Order stuff, transhuman stuff, their spiritual you know, coming together of everything. It, it's needed, because if we're getting worse, then you would f- know the truth, that we are getting worse. Why are we getting worse? Oh, because God cursed the world, that's why. So they have to convince you that we're not getting worse. No, 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 we're getting better. Trust me, we're getting better, we're going to evolve, and we're going to get really, really good. It's all nonsense. you know. But either way, Darwin contributed massively to this pre-atomic age obviously because evolution brought this idea of just gin- ginormous time scales and uh, dinosaurs and evolving from dinosaurs and billions and quadrillions of years and whatever right so that was a big impact now around that same time you had in 1860 another influential author in this whole pre adamite thing her name was Isabella Duncan and she wrote pre adamite man or the story of our old planet and its inhabitants told by scripture and science. And she basically mixed science and biblical interpretation, and it became very popular, especially with geologists of the time who were looking for ways to reconcile science and and religion at the time. And she said that pre-Adamites were angels and that they were raptured into heaven before whatever judgment happened. That some sinned and then they became demons as a result and that the Ice Age was an indicator of basically the previous judgment. Again, <laughs> fusing pseudo scientific things with Scripture and creating this vast narrative of, of just fairy tales that, that seems so just appealing because we love to hear stories. We love to hear fantastical things, as if the Bible didn't have enough fantastical things in it to begin with. But moving on, 1867, you had Buckner... H. Payne, who published a pamphlet entitled, The Negro, What is His Ethnological Status? And basically, in in that pamphlet, he asserted that blacks were pre-Adamic. They were pre-Adamic. They were a beast of the field on Noah's Ark, and that's how they survived. So obviously, you can see where this is going. 1875, A. Lester Hoyle wrote a book called The Pre-Adamite or Who Tempted Eve? (laughs) I mean, it just gets crazier. He had five distinct creations of races; only the fifth was white, and that was Adam. Eve had an affair with a pre-Adamite to produce Cain, and basically said that interbreeding was, you know, like a major sin. And this this started to come up around that time too. You had a the- in 1878, you had a theistic evolutionist and geologist named Alexander Winchell from Vanderbilt University who argued that blacks were too racially inferior to have developed from the biblical Adam. And just adding to that, in 1891, you had William Campbell, who was an Irish Presbyterian missionary, and he wrote, Anthropology for the people, a refutation of the theory of the Adamic origin of all races, as in the refutation of the Bible. And he basically said the flood happened because of interbreeding between the races. Very racist stuff between whites and other, uh, whites and other races were not, Brothers, whatsoever they, they were, just different creations altogether. Now I'm going to make a, a quick pause here, and I'm going to say this: I, I'm. This is not about social justice. This episode is not about social justice. This is not about racism. There's obviously uh, that whole tagline of racism and, and racial inequality is used very much by, poli- especially the left, but politics in general, to to just have class warfare. This is not what this is about. Uh, I, I don't believe that most of the things that happen are racist. First off, there's a lot more science that racism is more prevalent between people of the same race. But either way, the point is that the the history of this belief system of pre-atomic race, of pre-atomic creation, pre-atomism, where does it come from and how was it used? How was it viewed? You need to know your history. Okay, this is not, again, it's not about social justice. I'm not trying to make a claim about racism today. I'm just saying, where did this belief system come from? Pay attention. In 1900, you had Charles Carroll, and again, he's another author, and he said that the tempter in the garden was a black female, and that interbreeding was a sin. British Israelism also came around that time. Same ideas. They also said that the serpent had sex with Eve and produced a hybrid, which is the serpent seed. And Conrad Gard, who was, I believe, a pastor and writer, he, he basically promoted this whole Serpent Seed idea of a mongrel race where they're half lizard, half man. Now, Serpent Seed is extremely popular today, unfortunately. There's a lot of people peddling this, and I'll be doing a whole separate study on that. But it's totally not biblical. It, it really, you know, people who believe in this and who just hold to, with their teeth to it, we're going to get into a few verses about it. This is not about Serpent Seed, but it's worth mentioning because it's intertwined with this whole pre-Adamic thing. Again, this this is a hodgepodge of ideas. That's why it's very dangerous because you can get into one thing and it seems like they're related and then you get seduced by all these contrary ideas and you don't understand how they came about, where they come from, who are the types of people that came up with these ideas? you know, And so you just get lost. It's It's a jungle of of false theology and false ideas. But that's about when the Serpent Seed thing came around. And where did it come from? It came from these notions that there was a pre-Adamic inferior race. Presumably, you know, people who've been called Serpent Seed Jews, blacks, you know, anybody who's non-white. Now, again, it's not about racism today. I'm I'm not preaching about that. I'm saying at the time... How, how did this come about and why did it come about? It was used as a way to demonize another group. It, what, the, the motivations weren't sound biblical exegesis. The motivations were egotistical. They weren't led, led by the Holy Spirit. Now, in the early 1900s, you also had a congregational evangelist named R.A. Torrey who believed that the pre you know, civilization solved evolution and in biblical infallibility. They were trying to, to not... They're, they're caving to culture. And again, this is what happens today, too. They're caving to culture and say, well, how can we fit evolution, which is nonsense, with the Bible? So we can. So there we go, the pre-Adamic solution. That solves the—now the Bible can still be infallible, and, and we don't have to worry about placating science anymore. But people were starting to placate. And then in the modern day, you have, you know, like the 1970s and 80s and up till today, obviously— you had the the ancient astronaut's theory or drawing basically that ancient aliens created life on Earth and they were the gods of the old and they came down, you know, like the movie Prometheus that's been very popular. And certainly I I fell for those things too. If if it's one person that loved space and space travel and aliens and ancient aliens, that was me. I'm going to be completely honest with you. That was like my life. I loved Star Trek. I loved Prometheus. I love all those kinds of movies. Until I realize they're all lies. They're flat out lies. There's nothing true about any of that. And ultimately, the, the legends of the gods, quote unquote, yeah, those are, those are some truth there. But those gods, in quotations, they're fallen angels. If you know your history, those were fallen angels that left their estate so that they could be their own gods, just like Satan lied to Adam and Eve. So they could be their own gods on earth. And they were for a while. They were they were the principalities that became that inspired the ancient deities, so yeah, that's true. But it's not like little green men in a spacecraft came and seeded life on Earth. And so this led to other things too, like to creation narratives and how, well, you know, the the first creation must have been by the aliens, and then the God created the second one. I mean, it just gets absolutely crazy. So you know, I, I've listed a a good general review of things. This is by no means a comprehensive history, a lot more authors and, and just ideas, but it combines evolution, mysticism, uh previous angelic incarnations, a previous spiritual life, an immortal soul, the serpent seed. All these things are combined. And so how do you make sense of all this? First off, there's no academic support for any of this. Nobody who studies the ancient Near East or who actually studies the Bible. Now, we're not talking about like, people like you and me who just have a YouTube channel or, or a podcast and we talk about the Bible. I'm talking about people like Michael Heiser who have a degree upon degree in, in ancient Near East studies, people who study the Bible, who people who study archaeology of the Bible. None of those people who are worth their weight in gold, uh, they're, they're not going to assert any of these things because they're nonsense. They understand where these things come from and how inaccurate they are. But either way you know it also led to this idea of a first earth age so so far we've talked about the pre adamic age this idea that there was time before adam whether that was in a gap between genesis 1 verse 1 and verse 2 or you know where the days metaphorical or there was evolution either way there was some sort of gap in time it was not the literal six days that the bible says and this led to the first Earth Age or the Three Earth Ages, meaning that this is those three Earth Age means there's a first Earth Age before creation, where there a lot of things happened. Again, there's a lot of interpretations of that. Maybe the fall of Satan, we were all in spiritual bodies and Satan fell and collapsed the world, and so God created it again. Or there were dinosaurs and evolution, a whole civilization. I mean, there's a lot of theories. Opinion. Let me put it this way. There's a lot of opinions, not theories. A lot of opinions. But that was the first age. We're living in the second age, and the third age is obviously the the eternal kingdom. So that's where that comes from. But all these things basically came up and started to gain momentum. And there's a lot of unbiblical things about, especially the first earth age. First earth age specifically because it relates to the fall of Satan. Pre-Adamic Age is more of a generalized idea that, you know, there was time before Adam. It can include evolution. It can include all the things I told you. First Earth Age, which is an idea that sprang out of that, is more akin to the Mormon idea, which is that we had spiritual bodies and we were in the spiritual kingdom, but then Satan rebelled, and some of us chose to apparently support Satan. Some of us chose to fight Satan. And those people who did those things are the elect of today. The people who chose to support God in that, you know, famous battle that nobody has a documentation of. Those are the elect of today. And the people who didn't, they're kind of here and they're trying to work out their salvation and, and, you know, their memory has been wiped. And so, you know, apparently there's there's a way that you can get back in, even though there's some people who are predestined. So it just it just makes zero sense, and you're going to see ample evidence as to why. But some quick rebuttals to all this history I just gave you. Let's let's kind of get back down to earth here, after exploring all that. First and foremost, all the things I just shared with you about this pre-Adamic age, it's anti-gospel. It's anti-gospel. John 17 verse 21 that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, I'm not talking about ecumenism because ecumenism is being one at the cost of truth. Okay, I would I would rather be different and have the truth than be separate and have the truth than, than to unite in error. Okay, so this is not what it's about. But Christ does want the body of Christ to be one. That's true to be united. But if you think that some people were not created by God, they were you know just either hybrids or they were mongrels or animals or whatever because of a pre-Adamic age, how can you reconcile that with, with the gospel? You can't. And that's exactly what happened. People were demonized because of this idea. Now, they're not so much anymore. It's evolved. It's become more new agey now. But for several hundred years, it was it was used to demonize groups of people acts 28 verse 28 therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of god has been sent to the gentiles they will listen gentiles is the nations so salvation has been sent to the nations now i'm not i'm not talking about universalism okay i'm not talking about that everybody can just choose their way to salvation that's not what i'm talking about i'm saying that God's plan is to include all the nations. He's got elect from every nation. He's got elect from China, from Africa, from Germany, from Russia, from all over, from South America, they're all over, and that's the point. Okay? But if you believe that people in Africa are inferior or that, you know, certain Jews are serpent seed and so they can't be saved, how do you even measure that? How do you know if they're the serpent seed? That's a good question. It doesn't match the gospel. It certainly doesn't. John 7, verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That's a constant theme in the Bible. One of the things that we know is that Eve looked at the tree of knowledge and she saw that it was pleasing to the sight. That's mentioned in the very beginning of the Bible. You look at how the Israelites selected their first king, Saul. He was tall, dark, and handsome. When they went to go select the next king and they were looking for David, they looked at his brother first, and his brother was very good looking. But then the Lord said, don't look at his brother. I've rejected him. You know, don't you got to judge by right appearance. Just what he said in 724, John 724. So do not judge by appearances. And here's that verse I was just talking about, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or in on the height of his stature. <laughs> Saul, who was before this, was the, high, the tallest guy in the land. People literally, he was like the tall, dark, and handsome, you know, the visual Messiah that they wanted. But, you know, he's dead inside. He couldn't do anything because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And this is the great point with all of this, guys, is that as we go through this, you're going to see that Satan's efforts is always to bring you back into the world, back into the flesh, Things like the serpent seed or whatever other versions of this—they bring you back into the world. They don't put your focus on the spiritual things; they put your focus on genealogies and on, on physical things. In Genesis two verse seven, we read: "Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." But they believed again. This is responses to the things I just showed you in history. They believe that blacks didn't have a soul. That black people didn't have a soul. Serpent Seed says that some people are physically demons. Like they have physical, you know, Satan DNA somehow. How do you know that? <laughs> I mean, there's, look, there's some weird stuff on the internet. I'm going to concede that there, there are some things that we can't explain. I've seen way too many people, sh- you know, shapeshifting their eyes and doing all kinds of stuff. I don't know what that is. I've done some videos on that. I don't know what it is. I'll concede that there is some weird stuff going on. I'm not opposed to it being demonic possession. But there are so many problems with believing that Satan slept with Eve, first off, while Adam watched. And, you know, there's this whole hybrid race. First off, Cain's descendants got killed in the flood. Nobody survived. And you could say, well, you know, one of the, the women who are Noah's son's wives, they were probably corrupted. Well, how do you know that? Does scripture say that? I don't think so. I mean, God chose Noah because he was pure in his generations. Assuming so, everybody else was pure that he chose. So, ultimately, there's no biblical proof for that. And this is this is a whole other study. I'm not even going to get into it. But there's just so many things wrong theologically with believing in a serpent seed. But all these things tie into this idea of, of a first creation age, a second creation age, a pre-Adamic age, first earth age. They're all related. Sometimes people believe in the first earth age, but they don't believe in serpent seed, or they believe in both. So you have to be very discerning. Now, another thing I want to respond to is a misunderstanding of biblical history by all these people that I previously listed to you. First off, the reason the flood happened wasn't because of interbreeding, not between races. It happened because of the Nephilim. The fallen angels did take wives from themselves. That's in Genesis 6. And their offspring were giants. These giants inspired legends of old. And, you know, there's other resources like the books of Enoch, which they're not scripture, but they can, they can be a valuable resource for this particular topic. But the Nephilim were, were dominating humanity. They were evil. And humanity basically were worshiping them and worshiping the fallen angels. You know, Satan had tried to take over the earth because he knew the Messiah had been promised. And so he tried to corrupt the genetic line of humanity. That's what that so that's why everything was destroyed, not because of, you know, different skin color people breeding with different skin color people. That's not at all why it happened. Now we're gonna come back to this because, uh, so previously I had mentioned that Ham got cursed with black skin. That's what Talmud, that's what the Talmud says, the Babylonian Talmud, Babylonian Talmud, if I can get my words right. But if you look in Genesis nine verse twenty five. He said, "Cursed be Canaan." A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Canaan was Ham's uh, son. So, was this prophecy fulfilled is the question. Because this is what's used, first off, this is what's used to say, well, you know, the Africans are, you know, descendants from Ham and so they're cursed. That's why they're so impoverished and, you know, it's just on and on and on and on, right? That's why they were slaves, (laughs) first off. Every race has been slaves. Whites, Chinese, Japanese, Mongols, Africans. Every race has been slaves. People are being enslaved today. Look at human trafficking. So that's nonsense. That's just evil human nature. But Canaan didn't have black skin. First off, Canaan was cursed, not him. So the Babylon Talmud is wrong. Canaan didn't have black skin, neither did his brothers. And you had this prophecy already fulfilled. The Canaanites were enslaved by the Israelites. The Israelites were descendants of Shem. And then they were enslaved by Medo-Persia, like the Greeks and the Persians. And those people were descendants of Japheth. So this prophecy was already fulfilled. So the conclusion is that black slavery isn't a punishment for Ham. So all those things that were asserted by those previous authors and people who basically... Promoted this this whole pre-Adamic idea in in different races and, and things like that. Well, though they just didn't understand Scripture, right? And so the question is, if those are the people building up this belief system, they have no clue. Doesn't that make you want to scrutinize what you believe a little more carefully? Now, Priya, with all that said, let's let's go to the next idea here. Pre-atomism, it's so hard to say that word, pre-atomism. It relies on a couple of things, or it may, you know, one or two or all four of these. So basically that Genesis 1 and 2 are separate creation accounts. Okay, so now we're going to start sifting through the weeds. Genesis 1 and 2 are separate creation accounts. That's one of the, the pillars of pre-atomism. Another pillar, and again, these can, people can believe in all of these, some of these, one of these. This is why it gets so confusing. Another one is that there's a gap between the first verse of Genesis and the second verse of Genesis, between where God created the earth and then it was formless and void. Okay, there's a gap. That's the other pillar. Another pillar is the figurative use of days in creation. Well, the days must be metaphorical periods of time. So therefore, you know, there must have been millions and millions of years in, in those days before human beings. So there could have been an age, Right. they mix that with evolution especially now after you know 150 years of that being brainwashed into the public but the last thing that it (laughs) combines with again these are pillars that can can fall you know either all of them or one of them this notion of an immortal soul that there was a spiritual pre-existence that we had and somehow that was compromised and changed so we're going to look at all these and break them down the first one is were there two creation accounts in Genesis? And this is my goodness. When I first came back to Christ, I ran into this theory and it really threw me for a spiral because I didn't have sound biblical experience. I didn't even read the Bible at the time. You know, it just seems so convincing. And there's a lot of dangerous theologies that come with this. And there's people who promote these kinds of things. I'm not going to mention their name because I don't want to give them publicity. But... There's people who promote these kind of things and say that, you know, Genesis 1 is the Elohim. That's who created, you know, the the fallen angels created reality and God created, you know, He's Genesis 2. And so we're trying to escape this reality and it goes into Gnosticism. And there's just so much nonsense with this idea that there's two creation accounts. So let's break this down and prove to you why there are not two creation accounts, but there's actually just one. There's three points that people bring up with With the two creation accounts. The first one is that there's seeming contradictions between the two accounts when it comes to plant life and animal life. The second point is that there's stylistic differences between these two accounts, so they must be two different accounts. The third point is that there's different uses of the word for the Creator. So in the first it's Elohim, which is used countless times throughout the Bible to mean various things. And then the second is Yahweh. It's the Tetragrammaton. It's the, the the name of God. So they must be two different things. Elohim, because it's used in some senses for the sons of God in other places, there must be a different creation that the fallen angels made. Well, first off, right off the bat, only God is creator. That's the thing that makes him God. He's self-existent and he creates. There's no other being that can create the world. So the idea that fallen angels created reality... You should reject that if you're biblically sound, because that's nonsense. But let's look at the claim that plant and animal life were, there's a discrepancy there. So in Genesis 1.11, and God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation plants, yielding seed and fruits bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And if you look at Genesis 2.5, When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Okay? So it seems like there was, no, there was plant life in one and, and no plant life in the other. All right. Well, first off, it doesn't say the time difference between these things. And all these points kind of tie together because the stylistic difference between Genesis 2 and Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is chronological. Right? It says this happened on this day, this happened on this day, this happened. It's very mathematical. Genesis 2 comes back in. It comes back in to the sixth day of creation to highlight that sixth day in a narrative sense. It's topological. So topic versus chronology. And as you'll see, this is a very common literary device. And so the, what is the point? The point is this is taken out of context. Okay, If we looked later in Genesis 2.8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. There was already plants to cultivate by the time God put the man in the garden. Okay, so the in the next verse, look at this. And out of the ground the Lord God had made up spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So does this say, and out of the ground suddenly plants came out of the ground? After he planted man in the garden? Well, first off, how can you have a garden, a garden of Eden, without plants? It wouldn't be a garden. If God put man in his empty place and said, okay, this is the garden of Eden. It doesn't look like a garden. No, this is a matter of fact. Genesis two nine is a matter of fact statement. When it says, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. That's not saying suddenly things started sprouting after. It's not a chronology. It's saying God put man in the Garden of Eden and he had, plant, he had sprouted plants and fruit trees for everybody to eat. It's a matter-of-fact statement describing the Garden. It's not a chronological statement. You know, when you look at Genesis 2, and we'll get into this in a, in a little bit with some stylistic commentary, but Genesis 2 is... It's skipping a lot of days. Look at Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field, here's that verse we just read, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This skips like several days. Why? Because it's not interested with chronology. It's interested with the creation of man. Why? Is, why do we say that? Because this is the title of the ta- the chapter: the creation of man and woman. That is the highlight of this entire chapter. It doesn't care about chronology, and as you can see, as you will see, actually, the fact that it doesn't care about chronology, or at least outline it, is a very telling sign that it is the continuation. But another one is the animal life, and that's in Genesis one twenty four. You know, it says, "Let there bring." Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And then you have later in Genesis 2, verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So how do you read this? Do you read this as Adam was there and then suddenly he got lonely? God said, you know, it's not good for Adam to be alone. Boom, let me spring up billions of creatures out of the ground and bring them to Adam right now would God contradict himself would the Bible be contradictory would Moses contradict himself now some people believe that Genesis was written by different authors but that's been proven false you know a good resource for it is um, the Moses controversy I'm gonna I'm gonna link it's a documentary I'm gonna link that in the in the links here as well but ultimately Moses is the author of Genesis. There wasn't multiple authors. And so would he contradict himself? That in Genesis 1, the animals are created before men, and then in Genesis 2, that they were created afterwards? Is that what it means? No. It just means it's not good for man to be alone. And then he, God had... It's just the language is not the language that we usually speak. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man. He had brought the animals that he formed out of the ground to the man not that he formed right now like in front of Adam he brought the beasts of the earth it's attributing creation to god who made the be- who made the beasts and the birds god did how did he make them out of the ground it was supernatural it wasn't evolution that's the point it was supernatural he brought them to the, to the man who brought them god brought them who made them god made them he made them out of the ground Not, he made him out of the ground right there because Adam was lonely. You see how the the twisting of the words happens so easily? Now, this whole difference between narrative and chronological and topological, it's not significant. And I'm going to read you a couple things from the uh, Apologetic Press, which is a great scholastic article that you can, I'm going to link it in the resources for this episode. But, This is from the Apologetic Press, and the title of the article is, Are There Two Creation Accounts in Genesis? And when it comes to stylistic variation, Professor Kenneth Kitchen of the University of Liverpool has noted, Stylistic differences are meaningless. Such differences may as much indicate a variance in the subject addressed as the suggestion of multiple authors. On the basis of archaeological evidence, Kitchen has shown that the stylistic theory simply is not credible. For example, a biographical inscription of Uni, an Egyptian official who lived about 2400 B.C., reflects at least four different styles, and yet no one denies the unity of its authorship. Okay, so that's really important. Now, if we go down a little bit, and we read a little more, this type of procedure, which is alternating styles, okay, you had Genesis one is a chronological style, Genesis two is a type, it's a topological style. It's a narrative. It's it's more, you know, detailed to highlight a particular thing, the creation of man. This type of procedure was not unknown in the literary methodology of antiquity. Gleason Archer observed that the, the technique of recapitulation, which is what it's doing, was widely practiced in ancient Semitic literature. The author would first introduce his account with a short statement summarizing the whole transaction and then he would follow it up with a more detailed and circumstantial account when dealing with the matters of special importance. Second, this is also important, there is clear evidence that Genesis 2 was never an independent creation account. There are simply way too many crucial elements missing for that to have been the case. For instance, there is no mention in Genesis 2 of the creation of the earth, and there is no reference to the oceans or the fish. There is no allusion to the sun, moon, or stars. Archer has pointed out that there is not an origins record in the entire literature collection of the ancient Near East that omits discussing the creation of the sun, moon, and seas. Obviously, Genesis 2 is a sequel to chapter 1. The latter presupposes the former and is built upon it. So, Genesis 2 doesn't have anything about the sun, the moon, the earth, the seas being created, if it's a separate account of creation it would it would it wouldn't be because there's no account of creation in the entire ancient near east whether it's hebrew or pagan or whatever that doesn't have these details you see what i'm saying like it wouldn't it wouldn't be a creation narrative because it wouldn't it would have had to follow that structure just like genesis 1 followed that structure very plainly it talked about the seas the stars everything Last thing here, the following summary statement by Kenneth Kitchens is worthy of notice. It is often claimed that Genesis 1 and 2 contain two different creation narratives. In point of fact, however, the strictly complementary nature of the two accounts is plain enough. Genesis 1 mentions the, creations of, the creation of man as the last of a series and without any details. Whereas in Genesis 2, man is the center of interest and more specific details are given about him and his setting. There is no incompatible duplication here at all. Failure to recognize the complementary nature of the subject, distinction between a skeleton outline of all creation on one hand and the concentration in detail on man and his immediate environment on the other borders on obscurantism. Or just plain English, poor exegesis, as in poor interpretation of the Bible. So, what about the two gods I, hypothesis that you know there was you know in Genesis 1 you have Elohim and you know Genesis 2 it's it's the Lord God it's Yahweh well let's look at Genesis 28:13 and, and see what that says and behold the Lord stood above it and said I am the Lord the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac Isaac the land on which you lie will give you will I give to you and to your offspring now in this phrase, you have both Elohim and Yahweh. So if we look at the Lord, that's Jehovah, and then God is Elohim. I am the Lord Yahweh, the Elohim of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So ultimately, that phrase unites Elohim and God. So, first off, God has countless names that he uses throughout the Bible. He uses Elohim. The other explanations for this is that there's something called the royal plurality, which was a way to magnify somebody of great stature. Obviously, God has the greatest stature. So using the plural Elohim was a way to raise and glorify God. Elohim. It's a plural word. Okay. Now, yes, is it used for other things like the sons of God and judges and even kings and rulers? Yes, but it's it's used for God first and foremost. And it would be appropriate because first off, God is a triune being, and it would be appropriate from the royal plural perspective to magnify God's name. So you got countless names for God, you got the royal plural, you got the Trinity, you got God admitting and uniting Elohim with his name, Yehovah. All in one sentence, you got all these reasons, four good reasons, and people still believe that the Elohim in Genesis 1 is is fallen angels or some other people, maybe, you know, ancient aliens that created heaven and earth, is that really sound biblical interpretation? And the answer is no, it's not. Because you're not being honest with culture. You're not being honest with anthropology. You're not being honest with scripture. You're you're trying to twist God's word to fit an agenda, if you believe that. And Matthew, here's another one to, to consider, and it's, I think it's just it's a nail in the coffin, but Matthew 19.4. Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now why is this passage, these two verses, so significant? First off, it's because Jesus said them. Second off, it's because they unite Genesis 1 with Genesis 2. Have you not read that he created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's Genesis 1. After Adam sees Eve, and this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Why, why is that significant? Because these these two statements happened in two different chapters. So Jesus is uniting them as a continuous narrative. He created them male and female, and they shall, two, two shall become one flesh. That means that man, Adam, who was created, was created on the sixth day. He rested with God, and then Eve was created. And I might be getting my order wrong. By the way, he, he, he rested. Eve came to him. He basically saw Eve, and they were married, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, so ultimately these two chapters are united by Christ himself. So that's really important because, again, it's evidence that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are continuations of each other, not, you know, contradictory. It wouldn't make any sense. It also proves that Adam wasn't androgynous. Okay, Adam was not this androgynous hermaphrodite or transsexual or whatever other thing that these pagan belief systems have put into mankind. First and foremost, the Talmud. The Talmud is a satanic book, as far as I'm concerned. That is a, a book that was not inspired by the Holy Spirit, but by the opposite. And if you know about the Talmud, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But the Talmud says Adam was androgynous. So what does that tell you? Okay, that tells you that wherever God does something, the devil has to do something opposite. Where there was two sexes, he has to make it one. Okay, okay. If it's marriage, he has to split it apart and do polygamy or, you know, adultery. So everything God does, the devil has to do opposite. That's how you know the devil's signature is on it. What, what Christ said unites Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and it proves that both male and female were created. Not male was created, and he, and he was a the they-them, and he was androgynous. That's nonsense. That's not at all how it's read. But what are some of the conclusions that we can take from all this so far? Well, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are not two creation accounts, period. That should be pretty plain to you. I hope it is. But, you know, this, this is an, unfortunately a, a vast topic of debate. But most of the people debating this, or I should say holding to it, they're not doing proper exegesis of the Bible. They're not considering scholastic sources. They're not considering archaeology, anthropology, you know, they're not doing word studies. They're just reading things and bringing in all of this extra stuff into the text. Now, what does that tell us if there's Genesis 1, and Genesis 2 are not cre- separate creation stories? Why, why is that so significant? Well, it's significant because Adam was not created after the seven days, which is one of the, the theories of this pre-Adamite or first Earth age idea or, or gap theory. Adam was not created after the seven days. He was created on the sixth day, and he rested with God on the seventh day. That's very clear from what Christ said, from scripture, from everything. Now, it what it also means is that Genesis 1, now let's follow the train of logic here very, very closely. It means that Adam was created on the sixth day. There's no separation of creation between Genesis 1 and just it's a continuation. Okay? Genesis 1 is not a pre-Adamic age. That's what that means. Because Genesis 1 is just a creation of the world. Adam was created on the sixth day. It's a continuation. So Genesis 1 cannot be a, continu- or a, a previous age before Adam. Because it's not talking about that. It also means Adam rested on the seventh day with God if he was created on the sixth day. This is very important. Follow the logic here if the days are metaphorical okay if the days are metaphorical and what's what's the first metaphor that they could be a thousand years that's a day is often used in in prophecy as a thousand years okay but that's in prophecy not in you know chronology okay but either way let's say let's give it to them and say that the days are metaphorical what does that mean well if adam was created on the sixth day which he was obviously and he rested with God on the seventh day. What does that mean? That means he rested in a thousand-year period. And the Bible tells us he, he lived to be 930 years old. So that's a mismatch. Adam could not have lived to be 930 years old if he also rested with God for a thousand years. See how that works? That's why the days are literal. If the days are metaphorical, it doesn't correspond. The days are literal. And even worse, if the days signify periods of millions of years, as all these Christian evolutionists are now trying to reconcile the Bible with quote-unquote science. I'm not going to say science because it's not science. It's quote-unquote science. They're trying to reconcile the Bible and say, well, you know, we can still have creation in periods of days, but those are periods of time. They're millions of years. Well, how does that work? If Adam was created on the sixth day, and there was another day of rest. Do you see how smart God is? It's just so brilliant how he how he's made everything that the answers are there, man. No lie of the devil can can prosper. The the 7th day proves that there those days were not periods of millions of years. How could Adam have rested for millions of years and then lived for to be 930 years old? It's impossible. The Sabbath disproves evolution and all of this other stuff and you know periods of time and thousands of years for each day and all these misinterpretations no they're literal days they're literal days now if you don't believe that that's between you and god but the bible teaches literal days of creation so where does that leave us if there's no two creation accounts if they're literal days well i'll tell you what it leaves us it leaves pre-atomism the idea that there's a pre-Adamic age, the only way that that could possibly fit after we've eliminated all this other stuff, two creation, uh, you know, ages, whatever, two, two creations, <laughs> previous earth ages, all this stuff is so mixed up. It leaves the gap theory that there might be a gap between Genesis verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 2. And the first age, the first earth age, theory or hypothesis or opinion, I should say, it mixes the gap theory. The gap theory is just a neutral, kind of a more neutral theory. It's like, oh, well, there must have been a gap between Genesis, first first verse of Genesis and second verse of Genesis. It doesn't add any more like theology to it. People have come in and added theology, kind of like the Mormon spirit babies, kind of like, you know, all this new age stuff, kind of like the The first earth age, which is Satan's rebellion, happened in the Gap. And, you know, there was this crazy age where it seems like there was a millennial kingdom and we were all there and happy, but Satan rebelled and God judged the world. And some of us, you know, were judged. I mean, all of that is being brought into the Gap. So the question is, is the Gap theory biblical? Let's look at it. Now, the proof texts they have, I'm just going to go through them and we'll come back to them after making a few points. They have Isaiah 40, 45, and these aren't all of them, but these are just some of the choice ones that I brought forward. And again, hopefully if you are with me and you understand sound biblical exegesis, you'll see right through all these. But Isaiah 45, 18, For thus says the Lord, uh, Lord who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Okay, so he... Formed it to be inhabited. So apparently this contradicts Genesis 1, verse 2, where it says the, the earth was out form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the, the argument is, God would never have made an uninhabited earth. The earth became formless and void because of Satan's downfall. So I was just going to leave it there. We'll come back to it. Jeremiah 4, verse 23. I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void. There we go, those words again into the heavens and they had no light. And so this is supposedly documenting Genesis one verse two, this verse. So we'll, we'll look at that as well. And then you have two Peter three, particularly verses five through six. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago <gasps> secret knowledge. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these the world that then existed, hmm, previous world, was deluged with water and perished. So that's interesting, but is it about a pre Adamic world or is it about something else? Well look at that. So first before we jump back to these verses and we totally destroy them, not the verses themselves, the interpretations. I wanna I wanna read a couple of verses to you. And the first one is Revelation twenty two eighteen. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the place described in this book. And if anyone, anyone takes away from the words of the book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Exegesis and eisegesis are two different things. Exegesis is proper interpretation of the text. Eisegesis is bringing in your interpretation into the text. It is the opposite. 2 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4, verse 4. For the, actually, three 3 through 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We are living in the most deceptive age there is. There is so much deception, and and Satan is running out of time, and he knows that. You have to have discernment. Exegesis, proper exegesis, meaning being able to interpret the Bible. Ex, meaning extract, and extract knowledge. Okay, eisegesis is the opposite, is to put your own knowledge, preconceived knowledge, into the Word and, and twist it for your own agenda, okay? This is so important and so few people have it. That's why I decided to start doing these Bible studies. And, you know, they're helping me as well because it really helps me get clear on the positions uh, that I believe in, be able to share that with others. But ultimately, look, you have to have sound research. You gotta do your research. You have to ask yourself, what does it say about God if I believe this? What, what is the is the culture of the time? What is the the words in the original language? things that give you good exegesis. Here's a a couple examples. Reading the context of the selection, the chapter, the previous chapters, the book as a whole, and comparing it to the entire scripture. Reading the original language and the word meanings. Not just strong concordance, but actually the interlinear, relating the words in context. That's really important. Studying the cultural attitudes of the time. How would the authors have thought about something? That's really important. Cross-referencing scriptures. And not just ones that are cherry-picked, like the ones I just cited, but actually cross-referencing chapters and passages and books with each other. That's something that most people don't do. You know, when you build a case, you have to build a case with multiple scriptures and multiple pieces of evidence, okay? And, And you have to address challenges as well, because there's always challenges, even in things that are established, like election. People still debate that today, but it's very biblical. And... And it's a very hotly debated thing. You got to let scripture interpret scripture. Things that are not exegesis, but eisegesis is looking up Strong's Concordance for a word and then building a theology based on that. Oh, see, this says like such and such. And so I'm going to interpret it through my own Western view. That's not theology. That's not sound biblical interpretation. Strong, remember, was criticized for Academically, he's criticized for his concordance. Strong was not a linguist. He was not a Hebrew etymologist. He was—he wasn't like an academic. His concordance is useful, but it's—it's it's a tool. It's not something to rely and base entire theologies on. People will look up a concordance reference, and that gives you a ton of different meanings, and then they'll, they'll cherry pick one meaning, usually the one that's not as popular, and say, "See, this is what this means." completely ignoring the context of the passage and of the verse. So you can't do that. But people do that all the time and they have platforms and they teach others to walk in error. You can't isolate verses or words relating to other isolated words. and You can't cherry pick verses and build theology on that. You can't read modern attitudes into scripture. You can't bring extra biblical information and resources into the Bible. You can't bring... You know your new age concepts. You can't bring your evolutionary concepts. You can't bring all these things that have happened in the last two thousand years into the Bible and say, "See, it must be metaphorical days. There must be a period of time there," because evolution tells us, you know, there's, you know, lots of time. Well, wait a minute. Are you sure? Are you really sure about evolution? Have you studied the geological way that we date time and how, uh, you know, how not reliable it is? How much controversy there's over carbon dating and radioactive dating. Have you studied any of that? Have you studied evolution and its premises and how it's physically impossible? So are you so sure? And then you bring that knowledge into the Bible. Why don't you just read the Bible? And so ultimately, let's go back to these three verses now and refute them and refute not the verses again, but refute their interpretation because the verses are beautiful. Isaiah 45, 18. For thus says the Lord God who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. True, he did form it to be inhabited. But when you say this contradicts Genesis 1 verse 2, how is that even, like the thing that just blows my mind is how these two can even be related. First off, yes, God did create the earth to be inhabited, but he created the earth in seven days. You see how that works? He did inhabit. He did have the earth inhabited with animals and plants and fish and birds and people. After seven days, you're looking at literally the first part of it and saying, "See, he couldn't have created it." You mean he should have created everything all at once? Is that what you're saying? That, that basically the only way this would be satisfied for you is that if. God had created everything all at once in one verse. That's nonsense. You know, and then then you build theology on that, that Satan rebelled and had this whole kingdom before. Like, where do you get that from? And we're going to see how all this stuff is flawed. But these two verses, Isaiah 45, 18 and Genesis 1, 2, they don't contradict each other at all. Isaiah is right that he did create the earth to be inhabited because it is inhabited and it got inhabited through the days of creation. Now, have you ever asked yourself why God did that for seven days? There's a lot of wisdom there. First off, the Sabbath. He wanted to have a Sabbath day rest. Now, some people have related the creation week to an entire age of the earth, which is basically the the Sabbath day is the millennial kingdom. And we're living through through the six days of creation, which each day is a thousand years in this particular way as a prophetic sense. Remember... Prophecy and and chronology are two different things. But as a prophetic way, people have related the week. And so God, in ordaining the seven-day week, was actually ordaining the entire time frame of the earth as kind of a a type, as a type and foreshadowing. But in either case, the Sabbath is the end of the week. That was the reason why you had different days. There's a purpose to everything. So you can't look at like the very moment of creation. It's like planting a seed and nothing has sprouted, and you say, see, nothing's going to ever sprout. Well, how do you know? Have you waited to see what's going to happen? Same thing with this. Have you read the rest of the chapter to see that it actually does fulfill the verse? And that's why, again, people take things out of context. Poor exegesis. Let's move on to Jeremiah 4, verse 23. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. And to the heavens they had no light. Oh! <gasps> Is this documenting Genesis 1 verse 2 where it says without form and void? What's going on here? Well, let's let's go up a little bit. Let's see what's happening. Anguish over Judah's desolation. Who is Jeremiah? Jeremiah was a prophet. What did the prophets do? They yelled at Judah and Israel to repent so that they wouldn't be judged countless times. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, all the prophets, same pattern. So why, this is about Judah's desolation. And if you read the whole passage, the whole chapter, it is about Judah. Now, the phrase that he's using here is a reference to when there was nothing on the earth. True. But it's not a reference to a pre-Adamic age. Like, where do you even get that? Why would that be the case? For my people are foolish. This is verse 22. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they do not. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. This is about judgment on Judah's desolation, meaning they're going to get judged, and nothing will remain there at those places that are going to be judged. Anguish over Judah's desolation. That's what this is about. It's not about a first earth age at all. So again, you're reading into those things, things that are not there. Now, 2 Peter 3, verses 5 through 6 is one of my favorites. Because, again, this is like very plain if you read scripture. What is the chapter? What is the title of this chapter? The day of the Lord will come. And if you read this entire chapter, it's about scoffers who deny that the Lord will come and judge the world. Verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So this is what it's talking about. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago. True. They did exist long ago. Before Peter were thousands of years. Now, I don't know what the age of the exact age of the earth is. Not millions of years, that's for sure. But either way, that's a long time for him. Wouldn't you say so? I mean, we could say that Jesus existed long ago. That's 2,000 years ago. So, this is not talking about the first age of the earth. It's talking about the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Is that true? Yeah. In Genesis, says the it says God separated the waters from above and below, and he created the firmament, and he created earth within that space. Okay? So... This is talking about things in Genesis that happened. But these are verses after Genesis 1. Oh, 1 verse 1. So it can't possibly be first earth age. okay? And what, what is Peter saying? They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago. That God created the earth a long time ago. He's the author of all things. He's responding to the scoffers. And that by the means of the, of the world... Existed was deluged with water and perished. What world existed that was deluged with water? The flood world, the antediluvian world between the time of Adam and Noah, basically. That world was deluged with water. That's documented in the Bible. Why would Peter be referring to something that exactly refers to the flood, but yet he means a pre Adamic age? What is he talking about here? He's talking about the coming day of the Lord. What is a, What was a type? What was a shadow of the final judgment? A type and shadow for the final judgment was the flood. That's what he's talking about. Just as people were scoffers at the time with, with Noah, they're going to be scoffers just before the final judgment as well. People are going to be scoffing all the time. Where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So this is about the flood. Now, some people will say, well, it says Apolumi, where's this, um, I believe in verse 6, perished. The word perished. And it's the word apolumi or Apollyon, basically. I mean, there's a lot of roots for this. There's a lot of different ways to use it. But Apollyon or apolumi means to destroy. Okay, it means perished, right? Well, Yes, the world perished, but that's not talking about, again, this is poor exegesis, very poor. Because first off, Apollumi and Apollyon, you know, the whole Apollo root word set, (coughs) excuse me, is used for destruction throughout the Bible in various different contexts. What is Peter talking about here? Is he saying that the deluge destroyed the crust of the earth and God had to recreate the whole earth? No, he's saying that the world, as in the people and the beings that existed, the animals, it was, it perished. It was destroyed. And that's true. Trees were destroyed. Animals were destroyed. People, Nephilim were destroyed. Buildings, cities. It was all destroyed. Was the crust of the earth destroyed? Was the entire creative act destroyed? Destroyed? No, that's not what he's saying here at all because he's talking about the flood. So to, to read into this and say, see, he's talking about some period of time where the entire earth was completely destroyed and all that was left was water somehow suspended somewhere and God had to recreate the earth. And that's what Genesis 1 verse 2 is about. That is not at all what this is about. You got to read the context. And again, the context is about the final judgment. The flood was what Peter was warning about, because the flood was the the type for the final judgment. It's water, then fire. It's not a previous final judgment, then the flood judgment, then the final judgment. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. There's no documentation for that whatsoever. So, what's the conclusion? The conclusion is there is no support for a first age of the earth before Adam. There is none. Verses that are used. And again, I didn't list all of them. There's so many. But most of them, in my experience, are so taken out of context. It is crazy. Verses that are used are used out of context. They are. They're, they're cherry-picked. They're, they use one word like see, destroyed, and therefore it must mean that the earth was totally destroyed. That's not what that means. Read in context. Don't be so hungry to look up strong concordances and build a theology on that. You know, And also, they're misappropriating flood verses. From things that describe the flood, as you'll see, we're going to get into a deeper study, to this previous Earth Age judgment that supposedly existed. Those are verses like 2 Peter 3. That's about the flood. You can't misappropriate that to to something that you want to see in the Scripture, but it's not there. It's talking about the flood. It's not talking about some judgment that happened. Why would that even happen? God's pattern of judgment is very poetic and very clear. If he had judged the world, why is there nothing written about it? Judge the world previously to Adam, right? There's a lot of theological problems with it, but either way, those are the main conclusions. We're going to jump into a deeper study now. We're going to go back to Genesis, and we're going to finish this up with some rebuttals to all of these different things. So first and foremost, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life Giving spirit, but it is not the spiritual at first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. So, the fir- And then let's go on in one more verse. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from the heaven, from heaven. So, Adam was the first man. Adam was created. We know his name, right? Was given in Genesis two. The first man was from the earth, from the dust, that matches Genesis 1. The physical comes first, then the spiritual. This is so important. Because first off, it refutes, I mean, there's a lot of things that refute this whole spirit babies things from the LDS church, which is reflected in the first earth age. People who believe this and believe that Satan rebelled and had this grand rebellion before Adam and that we lived as spiritual beings. And oh my gosh, it's just such a romantic idea you don't realize that, first off, what does that mean? What does that say about God, right? Well, one of the things it says is, what is the legal precedent for us to have glorified or spiritual bodies in a previous age like that? The whole point of Christ coming down and suffering and dying on the cross, giving us the Holy Spirit, was so that we could have glorified bodies and live forever. See how that works? There is no life outside of Christ. It's the physical first, then the spiritual. But according to you know, things like the gap theory and the first earth age and serpent seed. There is the spiritual first and then the physical and then the spiritual again. That doesn't make any sense. There's no legal precedent for us having glorified bodies or spiritual bodies in a past life, let alone all the other things that it says. Now in Genesis, there's a lot of talk of pairs. So I want to go back to this idea that Adam was androgynous really quick because that's just nonsense. In Genesis 6, verse 19 through 20, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. This is Noah's ark. So that's very plain. Everybody knows that. Genesis 7, a couple verses later, verses 1 through 3, again, when the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you, shall, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So he's allowing Noah to go into the ark because he's righteous before me in this generation. Now, Noah was also pure in his generations, so for God to allow everybody in that household to go, that's, I think it's a pretty fair reading to say that everybody was also pure in their generations. No survivors of Cain, if serpent seed was true, which it's totally not, would have made it into the ark. But anyway, that's besides the point. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, male and, and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. Now, two things here, pairs and the male and his mate. So the male is the representative of the couple, All right? That's that's a, That was an understanding at that time. That's a fair understanding. Now, if we relate, to, relate this to Genesis 1, verse 22 through 25, and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So if they're fruitful and they multiply, that's sexual reproduction, Okay. God created the birds and the fish with sex, with sexual reproduction, okay? Just like he wanted them to be in pairs in Noah's Ark. Same creatures. He didn't recreate them or they weren't created androgynous and then, you know, basically became sexualized before the flood. That's, that's nonsense. So the question is, if God's pattern of creation was male and female, pairs, male and female, pairs. Is it right to read into that and say, when when God created man, male and female, he created them, like them as as a transsexual pronoun, like an androgynous pronoun? No, the pattern is pairs, male and female, he created them. Now, the name man, Adam, that's just man, that's used as representation for the human race, mankind, but that doesn't mean that man was created androgynous. That This whole idea of androgyny, this is in, in all the occult practices. First off, the Baphomet is androgynous. The Kabbalah talks about androgyny. The Talmud has, you know, a dozen or more different sexes that it identifies. All the pagan cults of, of you know, fertility goddesses like the Asherah, they had transsexual priests. I mean, this is all pagan occult nonsense. Again, where God makes two... The devil has to make one. And so this idea that Adam was androgynous is a pagan idea. And it's it's from Jewish mysticism. And you know who influenced that. And again, Genesis 5 verse 2. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when, he, when they were created. Man, when they were created. Man is their representative name. But they is plural. And again... Christ unites Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Remember that in those in those verses we looked at. He unites those two. Now, if we go back to the very first verses of Genesis 1 through 5, and, and it's like you, you read this entire passage, and so let's just read it and, and just kind of comment on it. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So, one through five is an entire day of creation. This is very important. These events relay a chronology of what's happening... And then it finishes with, and there was evening in the morning, the first day. If you read the rest of the passage of Genesis 1, it's the same thing. These things happened, and there was evening and morning, and the second day, and then the third day. So what does that mean? That means that between those two days, we ascribe all of those events to the day that it happened on. Okay, Exodus 20 verse 11 is very clear. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So Exodus clearly says that earth was created, the heavens and the earth were created in six days. It corroborates... Now, who wrote Exodus? Moses wrote Exodus. Okay. Now, it corroborates this account of Genesis 1, 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, being a single day. When you read Genesis 1-2, I said 1-1 and then 1-2, and you think that there's a gap between these two uh, verses, you're not in alignment with Scripture. You're not reading the context of this entire passage and how here's what's happening. Okay, that was the first day. Wait, what was the first day? In the beginning God created the heavens, the earth, the earth was without form and void. God said, let there be light. The light was good. All that was the first day. But if there's a gap, what does that mean? That means that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, okay? But then on the first day, he didn't create the heavens and the earth. He actually, you know, just let there be light. You see how that works? But Exodus is very clear that God created the heavens and the earth were created on the first day. Okay, everything was created on the first day. That's very clear, and you just got to be honest with Scripture. Now, what about Psalm 90? That's one that's attributed to Moses, and particularly a couple verses in there like verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So that says that, oh, the days, there you go, proof that the days are a thousand years. (laughs) They're not. They're not. I mean, they're they're used prophetically like that in, in prophecies and in visions, but not in chronology. This is the, the main error again. Now look at right after that. You sweep them away. This is verse 5. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like a grass that is renewed in the morning. <gasps> is this talking about the pre-Adamic age, the rebellion that Satan had and God flooded the earth and then he created again? No, it's not. What flood, What flood was there that all of the world knows about? The flood, the actual flood, the flood that destroyed the world that was the antediluvian world. Now, what is this psalm about from everlasting to everlasting? First off, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are continuous. We know that already. They're not two separate creation accounts. Adam was created on the sixth day, Adam rested with God. Let's review these things. Adam lived less than a thousand years. Therefore, The days that were in creation were not a thousand years. That's not what this is saying. That's not what Psalm 90 verse 4 is saying. What is it saying? Well, first off, the Psalms are considered poetry in the Bible. Anybody who quotes things like Job, and I believe in a flat earth, okay? But a lot of, even the people who believe in flat earth, they misuse scripture. And there aren't really that many verses in the Bible that support directly proved, like they're very strong verses, that support either model there are some few there are a few that are pretty definitive but it's not like you have hundreds of verses and most of them are used out of context why because most of them are poetry job is poetry the psalms are considered poetry now psalms have certain structures they have requests they have laments they have exhortations of god as in like glorifying god and you know basically appealing to god this psalm I'm not going to read it all but if you if you look at the end let the favor of the lord our god be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us yes establish the work of our hands that's the request it's the appeal to god you also have some laments and and, and basically looking at the condition of man you return man to dust and say return O children of man yeah we're nothing but dust they knew that that was a con- common understanding Remember, the Hebrews did not believe in an immortal soul. They believed in death. Only life was through God because they knew the Genesis curse. And this is also exhorting God. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. A thousand years is nothing to God. Why? Because He lives forever. <laughs> it's a simple reading. God is self existent, God lives forever. He's the only one that's self-existent. A thousand years are nothing to him. They're just a blink of an eye. It is nothing. That's what this is saying. It's it's glorifying God. It's saying, God, you're so great and you're so omnipotent and all-powerful and immortal. We are just dust. You sweep us away with the flood. We're just like nothing. Everybody knows the judgment and the wrath that came upon the world and who the supreme God of the universe is. And you know, for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. We are nothing. It's it's going on about how lamenting how man is nothing, how God is so great. For all our days pass away, under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like 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 a sigh. The years of our life are seventy. You know, it's just it's lamenting the, the complete dependence of man on God. And then you get towards the end, return, O Lord. This is verse 13. How long? Have pity on your servants. This is the request. It's the request. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And it just goes on. and Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. It has all three of these. This is a psalm in a classic fashion where there's a lament. There's an exhortation of God. And there's a request. This is what this is about. It's, it's just about again everlasting it's praising God. It's not about there was a secret earth age and people rebelled. It's like, where's the rest of the detail of that if this is so important? Compare this to 2 Peter three verse uh, two Peter chapter three verse four through six that we just reviewed, which is the flood. Heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water. That was the flood, the world before the flood. Look at Psalm 104, verse 6. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. What is this about? O oh Lord, my God, you are very great. Again, think in terms of laments, exhortations, requests. This is not. He has set the earth on his foundation so that it should never be moved. Now, some people use this for flat earth. I don't think it's a proof for that, because again, why? Because Psalms is poetic. You can't use poetry. You have to use it very sparingly. There's some things in Psalms that are useful, but it's you know it's it's not something to take literally and say, "See, this is what it means." You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. That means that. This relates to Genesis verse 1 through 2, and there was a giant judgment, and he covered it with, like, where do you get all that from? This this is, first off and foremost, about God creating the world, and he covered it with the deep, with the, with the oceans, okay? And he also flooded the world. That Those are reasonable readings, and it's about God and his greatness. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains, the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. I mean, this is about God and how great. God is. Why? Because the title is, O oh Lord, my God, you are very great. <laughs> it has nothing to do with with judgments, with previous earth ages, or anything else. It's just, again, you gotta read the context. Now in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5 through 8, when we when we talked about how this is a more detailed look and how it seems that it's skipping some things, yeah, there was no man alive at the time, because this is skipping days. It's not giving a chronology. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung, there's no chronology here. It's just, it's giving a, a kind of a narrative description. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Is that a chronology? No, remember, having stylistic differences mean nothing. This was a common literary tool to give the chronology and then to highlight one aspect of it and to give a more, you know, elaborate, detailed, poetic look of it. And, for example, in Genesis 2, verse 18, we know that Adam wasn't alone. Or I should say that Adam was alone. Then God, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Ask yourself this. If there were other people on the planet or on the world, I keep saying planet man, it's ingrained in my system, even though I don't believe in it. <laughs> but... If there were other people on earth, pre-Adamites, why was why did God say that Adam was alone? There was no other people on earth. Adam was the first human being, exactly as the Bible says. And the other thing is that Genesis 3, verse 20, the man called Eve his wife named Eve because she was the mother of all living. There was no other human beings... Before Adam. That, again, that's solid proof right there from the Bible. If you just read it plainly without trying to add things that came later, like evolution, like, you know, spirit babies and all these different things into this. None of that stuff is in there. It's just very plain. Adam was the first human being, and Eve was the mother of all the living. Now, the the objection about Cain with, with taking a wife and all this stuff, let's look at this. Okay, Genesis 5, 3, verse 4. When Adam lived 130 years, He fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and his name, and named him Seth. Now, if you if you go through this chronology, it it just tells you the chronology through through the rest of the verses of all the people that followed, you know, basically uh, Adam, and if we if we take into account that people lived that long, okay, and they were having children. The important thing is that he had other sons and daughters, okay? So if you look at Genesis 4, Genesis 5 through 4, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So this genealogy is just highlighting certain people. It's not highlighting every single human under the sun, okay? That's why this is important. And why it's important is because it answers the objection that all those previous people had when they were coming up with this pre-Adamic theory. It answers the objection that oh well Cain you know there were people on the on the on the earth and so he was afraid of being killed so he must have you know he there must have been pre-Adamites or he took a wife or you know he he set up his own city well yeah he did set up his own city but it doesn't tell you when he set up his own city okay he built his city but he doesn't say when he built his city and if you consider just this let's say they were having children every 30 years okay and they're living that long in in the life of a 900-year-old person that's 30 generations that you could father i'm going to guess they're probably fathering children more often than that and so it's it's very plausible that by the time cain left The house and he he got somebody in the family because that's how they were reproducing and there's genetic evidence for that but if you look at answers in Genesis I'll put a, a link for something very interesting with the chronology of the X chromosome and how it actually corroborates a young earth now again I don't know what the exact age of the earth is but ultimately look the science is not settled on it and the science of anything supports a young earth but that's besides the point the point is that genetically people were perfect in their genes when Adam was created So they were interbreeding. Yeah, it was fine. It's a a problem now because we're, you know, we're not charged with populating the earth and and we're cursed with our genetic problems. But in the beginning, it was needed to reproduce. And so ultimately, it's very feasible that there were people and that Cain could have established a city having multiple, multiple children. And they had multiple children. I mean, one person could have flowered into an entire city over the course of a few hundred years. That's very reasonable. So that's not an objection at all. There's no proof that there's pre-Adamites from those verses or from those accounts at all. Now, if we look at Romans 5.12 again, and this is one of those controversial passages, and actually uh, verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transaction of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Okay, If, here's the thing, what they suppose is this says, oh, people were around and Adam, they got punished too, even though they didn't sin like Adam. Or the actual reading, which is we who inherited Adam, inherited death, even though we didn't sin like Adam. That's the true reading. But the the reading of, well, there were people there on the earth and they were pre-Adamites and they got cursed too, even though. They didn't sin like Adam. If that's the reading, that doesn't follow the pattern of God's judgment. Think about it. If if Adam's curse is inherited, then that's fine. We're inheriting the curse. But if I'm just sitting around on the earth, I'm doing nothing, and Adam sins, but then God punishes me, how does that make God just? That doesn't follow God's pattern of judgment. He always gives just judgment. And the reason we can be cursed and it's just is because we inherited the curse of Adam. See how that works? And that's the that's the true reading of the text. The traditional meaning is that Adam's sin passed on to other generations because he was kicked out of the garden. He was cursed with death, and therefore all of his offspring is cursed with death. That's the traditional meaning. So it doesn't, again, this Romans 5, 12 through 14 does not prove that they were pre-Adamites. Not at all, because again, what does that say about God? If I believe that, what does it say about God? Serpent seed, that's another thing. I, I'm not going to get into this because this is a huge study, but I'll read you a couple of verses. First Timothy 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. This is a speculative, focused on genealogies and the physical flesh, fleshly things of the world, this whole serpent seed thing. Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Our, yes, we're created by God, but you're not a child of God until you are born again and you're adopted into his family. Being created by God and being a child of God are two different things. The adoption and the status of being a child is spiritual. God is spiritual; it's not a physical thing. Like some people are physically Satan's offspring, and other people are that. That makes no sense. That that is not biblically supported at all because everything about God is spiritual. God is spirit. Genesis four one. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. There's a whole study on this verse alone, and especially using the original languages. I believe Michael Heiser has it, where he says that, you know, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Eve, in the original language, is obviously attributing the verb to the Lord. Like, God is the reason that she conceived Cain. Okay, now ask yourself this. The people who believe in serpent seed believe that Eve was seduced by the devil that the devil mated with her somehow and they bring all this, you know, pseudoscience of super fecundation or whatever it's called where you, know, you can have two eggs or something, you know, it's just a whole scientific process of basically having two pregnancies and or two, two genes. I forget what it is exactly. I'm butchering it. But ultimately they believe that Cain was offspring of the devil. And do you think that the Bible would, if that was the case, if that was the case, but the Bible says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. What is, what is it teaching here? First off, there's a precedent throughout scripture that, God, that pregnancies are a gift from God. He's the one that either open wombs or opens wombs or close wombs. He gave Sarah Isaac. He gave Elizabeth John the Baptist. Right? There's the, the Immaculate Conception with Mary. God is the one that brings life. Okay? This is setting a, a type and shadow for that. You know, that's that's the whole point, is that from the very beginning, people attributed that to God. If that's what this is teaching, which is what it is teaching, how can it possibly be that Cain was Satan's child? And Eve is saying, I've gotten help with the man of the Lord, but it's actually the devil then the scriptures would be in error. And what does that say about God? Right? That's that's saying that God knit Cain in, in, uh, in Eve's womb and helped to knit the devil's offspring. I mean, that's just, it's absolutely crazy. But these are the kind of things that, if you just read them plainly, completely disprove this whole serpent seed thing. So I'm not going to go into it because it's a huge study. But again, moving on. Let's next point. Two ages versus three. There's not three earth ages. Very simple text. Luke 18, verse 29. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This age and the age to come eternal life. He didn't have eternal life in some previous hidden mysterious age. Matthew 12, verse 32. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. But wait a minute. If there was some crazy rebellion in the first earth age, why is that not mentioned? Why does it say, forgive will not be forgiven just like in the first age, nor in this age or in the age to come. Do you see how that works? There's no three earth ages. Throughout scripture, it's two ages. The present age and the final age, which is the eternal state. Again, if it's so important, if all of these things happened, why is it not mentioned? Now, I want to touch on the fall of Satan, and then we have some theological problems to review, and then and then we're done. We're wrapping it up. But the fall of Satan is something that people use in this first Earth Age to, again, it's to justify the Earth Age. They say, well, it was this period of time that was, you know, We were all immortal and, or whatever, angelic in some form and Satan rebelled and some people chose to help Satan. Some people chose to not, to to help God. And, you know, that's when Satan rebelled and took one third of the angels with him. So the question is, where does this idea of Satan rebelling come from? Where does it come from? And And the truth is that there's not that much support for it biblically. There is some support, but it's not what you think it is. First off, we know from Job, that Satan was already still in heaven, enjoying his benefits as the accuser. He was accusing Job. Okay, so Job happened after the creation events, after the Garden of Eden, and Satan was still there. And Satan was not a proper name. It's Hasatan, which is accuser or enemy or adversary. Okay, it didn't become like a proper name until the New Testament. But what happened with the New Testament? The cross happened. Satan was dethroned, and we're going to get into that. But I want you to think about that, that Satan was not, you know, there's no outright text that says Satan before rebelled before creation or before the creation of Adam. Now, we do know that Satan, there's a parallel between Eden and Job that's very important. In, in both Job, where Satan challenges God, basically, God says, hey, have you seen my servant Job? And Satan says, "Well, you know he, he's just faithful because you've protected him. Take away all his stuff and he's going to curse you to your face." That was a serious challenge. He, Satan was in front of the heavenly host. The same thing is when he tempted Eve. He questioned God's character, that God was hiding you know knowledge or power. He questioned God's word. He said, "Oh, no, you're not going to die." And he questioned God's sovereignty. You can be like God. Don't worry about God's sovereignty. You don't need God. You can be your own God. The same thing happened with Job. He questioned God's character, his word, and his sovereignty. He questioned whether God could keep Job saved. He questioned God's character as if as if Job was just following God because, you know, God was protecting him. Well, no. Job was following God because he loved God and he knew God was perfect and righteous. And he also questioned God's sovereignty, again, that, that God was right about Job and that he he said what he said was true. So these challenges are very important. And why they're important is because Satan is raising challenges to the heavenly host. If God had just snapped his fingers and kicked him out of heaven and destroyed him, there would, there would be like this lingering like was Satan, right? Like, could you be your own God? Is that true? You see, like the question, like Satan didn't forcefully try to attack God. Or take over heaven. He, he planted deceptions and questioned God's character. So God allowed certain things so that qu- Satan's claims could be falsified. Satan didn't get kicked out. By the time he was at Job, again, he was still in heaven. He was patrolling the earth, coming, you know, he reported in heaven and he's accusing Job and questioning God. He's, again, this is a pattern of questioning God's, you know, sovereignty. So, what happened at the cross? At the cross, Satan lost the power as the god of death, which basically he became once mankind got cursed, and he got worshiped through that. All the ancient pagan deities were gods of death. All the fallen angels, you know, it's this elaborate underworld. Again, that's why I think this whole immortal soul thing is an illusion. It's a lie from the devil, because it mixes some truth, which is the spirit world, with, with a lie that we can be spirits too. And it's, it, it creates a whole underworld that you can worship and pray for the dead and sacrifice. That's, that was the entire old age. And Satan got worship through that, which is what he always wanted. But he lost that power as a death god. He lost his status as the accuser because Christ is our defense attorney now. He lost the claims he had against God from Eden, from Job. He was dethroned as the ruler of this world. That's all that happened at the cross. And so with that in mind, when we look at Revelation 12, Revelation 12 verse, yeah, one through, I mean, there's, there's quite a few verses here, but I would say one through four. The woman and the dragon. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon and under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This is like Joseph's dream. The woman is Israel. It's not Mary. She was pregnant and was carrying out in her birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with the se- with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who would rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, and there she was placed. She has a place prepared for by God, in which she is to be nourished for twelve hundred and sixty days. Okay, Satan thrown down to earth, Revelation 2, 12, verses seven. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place in them, for heaven, and the great dragon was thrown. Down That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God of our authority of our... and uh, I'm butchering this. Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority, it's very important, of his Christ have come. Pay attention to this. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. I just read you Revelation 12 through 10. Now let's, let's put all this in into context. First off, the woman is Israel. She's giving birth to the Messiah. The, the devil's trying to stop that. And the 1260 days is about the tribulation, so it's a future event. But now the war in heaven, what what war is that? Is that the pre-Adamic war billions of years ago when there was this golden age and we were all spirit babies? No. What has happened? The Messiah was born. He has been dethroned. The one who's now the salvation, Revelation 12, verse 10, now the salvation the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority, it's all about authority, of his Christ have come. Christ has authority now, legally. Satan doesn't have authority anymore. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown out. The war in heaven is not about some pre-Adamic war. It's about the cross. The cross dethrones Satan as the God of this world, as the ruler. So now he's, you know, he's got, we're living in the last days. Remember, the days in prophetic sense are a thousand years. That's why I think we're close to the return of Christ. Praise the Lord. But we're living in the last days. Satan is on massive deception patrol because he's been dethroned and he's going to try to do his worst. Now, what what about the one-third of his stars? Could that be, you know, like a, well, it could be anything. It could be angels because angels are compared to stars in Revelation. Remember, Revelation is a very poetic and metaphorical book. It's the most obscure book in the Bible. But does that mean that those people were, those angels were from uh, pre-Adamic age? No. It could be the fallen angels. It could be some angels that rebelled with Satan when he was dethroned at the cross. There was a spiritual war at the cross. The Bulls of Bashan, you know, Michael Heiser is a great uh, take on that. But there's a lot of people who discuss the spiritual battle at the cross and how, you know, the principalities were overthrown. Well, some of those angels rebelled with Satan during that time. So he took a third of the angels with him. But that's not before time began. That is at the cross. That is, that is just so important to understand. So if that's the case, then this whole idea, the whole notion of Satan rebelling and having this massive rebellion where he took a third of the angels with him and then that created reality or whatever, that's nonsense. You're misreading scripture. This is a, you can't isolate the dragon in, this, in these verses that we read. You cannot isolate Satan from the woman think about this very clearly you can't isolate satan from the woman israel and and what's going on there and the messiah so if if it's talking about israel and the messiah and then suddenly uh, the war in heaven arose this is that's after all these events have been relayed now a war arose in heaven now as in afterwards okay why would it go Israel, prophetic, Messiah, and then, oh, by the way, previous before Adam, before uh, before the age, and then back to salvation in, in Christ. doesn't make any sense. No, what makes sense is this is all a continuous story. Even though it's very prophetic and poetic, it's a continuous story of what happened. Israel birthed the Messiah. The Messiah defeated Satan and dethroned him. Now the accuser has been kicked out. Rightly so, because again, in Job, he still had his position. There was no legal precedent to kick Satan out. God does everything very by the book, and the cross was the legal precedent to finally kick Satan out, and then it'll and he'll be judged. He'll be judged at the end of the uh, at the end of the age. So, remember, here's another point to consider: in Two Peter two four, Second Peter. I always say Two Peter, man. I I just think it's easier. But Second Peter chapter two verse four. If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. Now, the word here is tartaru, Tartarus, which is a, only used once. And it's a special void prison, basically. It's a gloomy prison. And committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Okay, so, so think about this, all right? If Satan rebelled previous to Adam and took angels with him, but we know God's pattern of justice is that he put the fallen angels in prisons in Tartarus. Why would, if, if God was consistent, which he is, he would have done the same thing at the very beginning. If that's the case, why would the angels who rebelled a second time, according to this chronology, because remember you have before time, Adam was created, then the flood, then the fallen angels, then they rebelled. Those angels were put into prison. But why would they do that if they knew that God had put people into eternal darkness beforehand? They wouldn't have done that. They they banked on being able to be their own gods and whatever. Like, they thought they could get away with it. There was no precedent. But if there had been a judgment, why would why would God do that? And again, same thing for the flood. If God... You've got to think these things out, man. It just blows my mind. But if if God, when he flooded the earth, did not destroy the sun... Okay, he didn't destroy the sun. If that's the case, why would he have destroyed it the first time? Remember, Genesis 1, there's no light yet. It was created in the in the first day. So what that means is either the pre-Adamic first earth age had no sun, which makes no sense, but either way, if it had a sun, then God would have destroyed it in the judgment that he brought upon that age only to recreate it again makes no sense makes no sense absolutely zero sense the evidence we have for the fall of satan is is very scant it's it comes from luke 10 18 i'll give you a couple verses and he said to them i saw satan fall like lightning from heaven okay but why did he fall though again this is the return of the 72 what happened 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Yeah, because the Messiah has been born and he's dethroned Satan. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's true. Now, is this talking about a pre-Adamic fall? No, it's talking about the same fall in Revelation 12, where Satan lost his power, his, his legal authority over anything. Now, Christ has authority. He's the Messiah, and by virtue of his apostles, they, have a, they can start casting Satan's kingdom out. They have authority. That's the brilliance behind it. So it's not having to do with some pre-Adamic fall. Isaiah 14, how you have fallen, 12 through 15 or 14. This is the five I wills of Satan. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who lay the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly on the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now, you have been brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. This is obviously talking about more than just a earthly ruler, earthly king. It's a parallel statement. But again, it doesn't say when this happened. It doesn't say anything about chronology. It does accurately depict Satan. He wanted to be God, for sure. But he's been brought down low, and he will be brought down into the pit and destroyed on the final judgment. But at the cross, he was he was brought down low. He was kicked out of heaven. His, his position was removed permanently. Again, there's no indication there. Ezekiel 28, 14, You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. This is, you know, it's about... King of Tyre. It's addressed to the king of Tyre, but it's it's obviously about Lucifer or Satan, some some pre-Adamic. Like in verse thirteen, it says, "You were in Eden, the Garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering." There's there's a lot to be argued that this is also about Lucifer, but again, it doesn't say when the rebellion happened, right? Because presumably, when he's talking about you were you were in Eden, you hadn't rebelled yet. You see, you see that you see the point there that's made. You were in Eden, the Garden of God. You were an anointed guardian cherub, I placed you. You were in the holy mountain of God. So these things are being related. That means you when you were in Eden, you hadn't yet rebelled. That's why the, I think there's a misinterpretation to read that the devil, Lucifer Satan, you know, whatever his real name is, because Lucifer is just a, a moniker. When he was in the garden, he hadn't yet rebelled. He was he was accusing, he was challenging God's creation and God's word and sovereignty. So there was no legal precedent yet to dethrone him i right, see how that works he was in eden he hadn't rebelled it if he had rebelled why why put him in eden this is this is his status that he was he's like hey i put you in eden you were an anointed cherub you know who knows what his role was there but obviously he didn't sneak into eden after falling from grace the fall happened much later happened at the cross and again, look at John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. So yeah, he was he was evil. I think the devil was predestined just like the reprobate were predestined. He was sinning from the beginning. He was proud, proud from the beginning. Whoever makes the practice of sinning is of the devil for this devil has been sinning from the beginning. So, you know, There's no mention of falling from grace on any of these. uh, There's no mention of, well, you fell before Eden, or you fell certain... We know Job, he appeared in in the heavenly court, and he's accusing, and he has right standing there. Uh, Satan is not appearing before the heavenly court anymore. He's done. He's kicked out. He didn't fall. So this whole idea of the fall is reading Revelation 12 into... It's misreading it, first off, because Revelation 12 is about the cross. (laughs) It's not about Satan's rebellion. Now, these other verses that we read, it's clear that Satan was rebellious. He is the rebel. But again, you have to be careful about creating theologies and, and opinions. Another book that's often used as a resource is the Book of Enoch. And the problem with Book of Enoch is there's several problems. First off, I'm going to put a link as a resource that you can see all of the countless contradictions that the Book of Enoch has with Scripture and why it's not considered Scripture by the Jews or by Christians. But, you know, it's never been quoted by Jesus or the apostles. Now, there's a verse in in Jude, but we'll get to that. Jesus always said the canon was from the law and the prophets, right? Basically, you know, from the Torah all the way through Micah the prophet. That's it. Anything that was written after, which is the Book of Enoch was, it's not canon. That's why the Apocrypha is is rejected by the Protestant Bible, which it should be, because it has a lot of contradictory things like praying for the dead and, you know, paying alms to save people from after death. I mean, it's all kinds of contradictory things. And Enoch is not immune to that. The author, first off, isn't Enoch. It's a person who used the name Enoch to make it more credible. And there's a lot of things that they claim that they aren't consistent with Scripture, I'm going to give you a few of them and, and you can look them up yourself. But chapter 10, Enoch allegedly wrote about Noah, even though the Bible teaches that Enoch was taken up into heaven years before Noah was born. Well, I don't agree with the taken up into heaven thing. Enoch was taken, but he was taken before Noah was born. Yet the book of Enoch alleges, alleges that he wrote about Noah. There would be no way that would be possible because Enoch was taken, as in Killed, but, but saved, a pain, you know, given a painless death. That's what I believe. Because I don't believe in an immortal. I don't believe in an immortal soul. I don't see the Hebrews ever believed in that. You know, bi- the Bible teaches a contingent existence. There's no such thing as a spiritual afterlife. Where we, the life is here on earth. That's what the whole point was. Life is through Christ. We get resurrected. We get glorified bodies. We don't have these, you know, phantom souls that float around and they go to ether and the heaven or hell forever. That's a whole nother study, but that's not biblical at all. But chapter 14, the description of heaven doesn't match other visions in the Bible at all. And that's true. There's a description in chapter 14 that's like not consistent at all with any of the visions of heaven or the throne room of God. Chapter 19 claims to have been the only one. Enoch claims to have been the only one to see the end of day's vision. That no nobody else who sees it is true. So that contradicts the Bible, contradicts Revelation and Daniel and all these other prophets. In chapter 20, it lists Michael and Gabriel, but their roles are not at all their roles in the Bible. Like, Gabriel's supposed to be over serpents and other things. He's not the messenger angel. In chapter 32, Eden is still around after the flood. Chapter 47, God requires the blood of the saints as an offering, which is really weird. Again, this is like contradictory stuff to the entire scripture. Chapter 51, God chooses the elect conditionally after the judgment. So he's basically, God is choosing elect to save when he's judging the world, which is totally unbiblical. That makes God the most biased person in history. There's a a ton more contradictions, and again, I'll paste a link, but the book of Enoch has to be carefully used. It talks about the watchers. It talks about fallen angels. But it doesn't talk about the rebellion of Lucifer. It has a lot of genealogies of angels and different things, but a lot of them are mythological, and and considering how off it is with Scripture, you have to ask yourself, you know, do you really want to trust something like this? Again, it's it's an interesting resource, and I do believe that fallen angels came and created offspring, but you have to use sources like Enoch with a grain of salt. Now, what about Jude 1, well, verses 14 through 15, where it says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all the, and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This verse, 14 through 15, compared to Enoch 1, nine, which goes like this, And behold, he cometh with 10,000 of holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to destroy all the ungodly, and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness." which they have ungodly committed, and all all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Okay, so there's a couple of things that seem similar, but first off, these two things could have been quoting from the same thing. Could be a common thing that they were quoting from. We don't know. Now, that's point number one. Point number two is there are significant differences, like convict versus destroyed, right? So if you look at Enoch, it's talking about convict, but in Jude, it's... Uh, I'm sorry, it's the other way around, execute judgment to convict the ungodly of their deeds in Jude. But in Enoch, it says destroyed. So there's there's some other serious differences. I'm not going to break all of them down, but this is not proof that Jude was citing Enoch and, and therefore recognizes Enoch as canon. Because Jesus and none of the apostles ever cited from Enoch or ever acknowledged that it was included in the canon. They always acknowledged the law and the prophets, That was the Torah, right? The entire book from Moses, from the Pentateuch to the last prophet, which was Micah. So the Bible, what's the point? What's the point of all this? The Bible itself does not talk about Satan's rebellion or a previous angelic age or this grandiose rebellion that happened before the creation of Adam. None of that is talked about in the Bible. It is this idea that Satan rebelled And took a bunch of angels with him and whatever, before time began. This is a misinterpretation of Revelation 12. It's using other verses that talk about Satan's general rebellion or rebelliousness, like Isaiah and Ezekiel. And combining with things like Enoch, and again, misinterpreting passages that talk about the flood, it's composing this mahajpaj theology that has nothing to do with Scripture there is no biblical precedent for Satan rebelling before time began and taking angels with him. As I've hopefully shown you, I hope it's, it's been clear. Now let's get to the final part of this, which is theological problems. And we'll close this up first and foremost, here's, here's things that, that you need to address. If you believe in this, first off this idea of the first earth age, pre-Adamic age, all the things we've covered to creation age, there's so many variations. Ultimately, all these things are influenced by pagan and mystical sources. They're influenced by the Zohar, which is a Jewish mystical book. By the Talmud, which is totally an Antichrist book. It's pagan mythologies, Mormonism, evolution. Darwin was a Freemason. Remember, all these things have influenced this idea. None of it comes from the Bible. The Bible says that sin brought death. That's the next point. Death was brought about because of sin. But this says that sin happened before Adam, because obviously some people sinned, and you know some of us sinned, and we rebelled with the devil, or some of the people didn't rebel. Either way, sin happened before Adam. So that's a contradiction. That, that doesn't jive, and there's no support for it. The whole point is that God created everything to be good, and then Adam sinned. Another point that you gotta consider, and you have to be honest with yourself, the Hebrews did not believe in an immortal soul. That's a pagan belief. That's from Egyptian culture, from Greek culture, from Hinduism. All these cultures that were ruled by the fallen angels, remember, they were believing in an underworld, and you could be a soul and spirit. And so there. what does that mean? That means you could do things in the underworld. Look at the Egyptians. All the people who believed in all these rites after death, that was a way for them to get worship from nothing Do you see what they did? It was the biggest counterfeit in history. God is the God of life. He's the one that brings life. We worship God because he is the creator. He's the God of life. He brings eternal life. They want to be like God, but they can't create. They can't bring eternal life. So they flip the script. It's an inversion. They they get people to believe in this afterlife, the afterlife, that they can basically pray and do all these things to impact their soul and You go to different levels of consciousness and all these different things that we see today. All that stuff stuff is from pagan fallen angel religions because they got worship through that. They they suckered mankind into believing that they were just like the fallen angels. They were spirit beings. They had an immortal soul. There's no immortality outside of Christ. And the Hebrew culture believed that. They believed that there is no immortal soul. Hebrews 9 verse 27 is very clear. And just as appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. The dead know nothing, right? There is no eternal life outside of Christ. There's a whole study on the afterlife that I'm going to do with, with this topic because it's very, you know, it's very expansive, obviously. But again, it's one of those things that influences your propensity to believe this. But if you know the truth, you, you reject things like spirit babies and previous incarnations and, you know, whatever other eternal life or having an immortal soul. You reject all that stuff because, you know, it's nonsense. Another thing to consider is the election in this model from the, pre, the first Earth age is completely based on works in a past life. According to this model, the people who supported, who fought against the devil are the elect in this life. So take a notice of what that means. First off, God is rewarding people with salvation for doing something in a previous life. That is no different than reincarnation and karma. No different. And if you're honest, you're going to see it. You can change the wording. You can say it's a spirit body and then, you know, whatever. We got our memories wiped. It is functionally the same as reincarnation. You had a previous life. And you got rewarded for that life. On top of that, think about this. This is where the nonsense gets even more. The elect are guaranteed salvation, but then the rest of us, whoever, maybe we rebelled with Satan or whatever, we're given another chance, we have to free will our way to salvation. That's the most unfair thing in history. If you've listened to my once saved, always saved series on election and predestination, you would realize how silly that is. Because first and foremost, that makes God the most biased being in all of time and space. By choosing people to based on their good works and rewarding them but, and then not rewarding others, is that to his glory? No, it's not. It's to God's glory to resurrect the dead, the people who could have never made the choice, and give them a new heart. So you got to be careful with that because that's what this theory teaches, the first earth age that the elect were somehow the elect today because of works that they did in a previous life. That's nonsense. Total nonsense. Last but not least, what is the point of the cross? If God reacted to Satan's rebellion, that makes God respond to the devil. Do you see how this focuses on the devil? It's all about the devil with this. The relationship with man is just a side conversation. It's not the central focus of the Bible. It's not the central focus of the story we're in. But the real truth is that it was all about the father's love for the son, giving him a kingdom and a people. And the son taking on that kingdom and people and redeeming them for himself through the cross. The devil is a side note. He's a villain that was declared for the story. And he's not going to matter after the story's done. Then we're entering the kingdom. So that's the truth. But the, the truth, according to this First earth age is oh Satan rebelled. That's what got time pretty much going. God created it and kind of a reaction. And now we're here again. Somehow somehow we transition from spiritual bodies to physical ones. However that works, even though you know the population of the earth is increasing. It's just total nonsense. And again, last but not least, where's the legal precedent? We have a legal precedent for a resurrected body because Christ died and rose again there's a legal precedent now for us to be renewed and to have glorified bodies. Where is the legal precedent for us having eternal life or spiritual bodies in the past? There is none. So you see, my friends, it is just nonsense. And again, we didn't talk about evolution and how natural selection is just impossible. We didn't talk about new discoveries from a young earth perspective, but I'm going to post them in the in the link below in the discussions uh, or just the description of this episode, you'll see some great presentations. They're heady, they're heady presentations, but they talk about genetics and how the science is clear that you know it's very plausible that we originated from Adam and Eve. Very clear. Another thing to consider is carbon dating. We didn't talk about this either, but it's very flawed. I mean, for example, when when Mount St. Helens exploded, if you studied this and looked into it. Geological formations formed around that area that looked as if they were millions of years old. Okay, so the point being that geology is is a mystery. Everybody thinks it's an established science. It's not. We don't really know. The Grand Canyon could have been formed because of the flood, which is most likely what happened. But the point is that we don't understand the earth enough And carbon dating itself is very flawed. It's been proven to be flawed because a lot of it relies on assumptions. And there's no way to know the conditions of those things in the past. And so you come up with these bogus numbers like billions of years and millions of years, but they've tested chicken eggs at being millions of years old. So what's my point with all this? Again, I'm not going to get into it, but reality is not what it seems. So when you're bringing all of this stuff into the Bible, which doesn't talk about geology and millions of years and evolution and globes and a heliocentric model and you know spirit babies and an immortal soul all this stuff is nonsense you can see where it's from it's from the devil The devil has spread his seed everywhere trying to infiltrate the minds of of everybody through all kinds of lies so be careful be careful i'm going to link all my resources for further reading in the description of this episode i hope it's been useful it's been a long study i know but ultimately look this topic is getting more and more popular and i really hope that we have debunked it thoroughly so god bless and have a great week or day wherever you happen to be evening morning we'll see you in the next one